Welcome to episode 31 of Chin Music. It's a podcast presented by Frangrafts in sunny and just absolutely lovely DeKalb, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein and joining me, returning to the co-host chair, and maybe we'll get into why in a little bit, but joining me from what I'm sure are luxurious accommodations in Las Vegas, Nevada, he is the sole proprietor of the Joshian newsletter. It's Joshian. Joe, how are you? Good. Starting a kind of a working vacation, KG. Uh, it's my first travel since the pandemic, seeing friends here in uh, Los Angeles, Orange County, going up to Fresno. Really excited about the next couple of weeks. You stay on the Strip? Yeah, I'm actually in Caesars right now. Lovely. They have a good poker room. They do, actually. Uh, I haven't done anything gambling-wise on the trip. I've just uh, basically been working since I got here. Are you going to be gambling later? I, you know, I, I heard that you can actually bet on sports here. I don't know if it's true. I'm gonna I'm gonna investigate these rumors as the as the trip goes on. Are you a, are you a gambling person? Do yeah, you like I to am. gamble. I, I come by it honestly. It was I come from a gambling family. Um, you know, we were, I was filling out parlay tickets when I was in high school, and uh, you know, my mom, my mom, my aunt, my grandmother always used to go down to Atlantic City. Obviously, I couldn't gamble back then, but it was always a treat when they come back with the saltwater taffy from AC. It was a big deal. And you know, I moved out to LA. I would go to. I still remember the first time I walked into the Mirage back in was it '92. And just being overwhelmed. But yeah, I enjoy. Um, uh, I used to play a lot of poker. I know you used to be a yeah. poker guy. And I was for, I would say, about maybe 10 years. But I haven't really played seriously now since maybe 2008, 2009. LA's got that great poker scene. And of course, I worked, I lived out there for a long time. Yeah, I had a wonderful night at the Commerce one night. Yeah, exactly. And that's the big, I think it's still the biggest poker room in the world. I played a lot of hands at the Commerce. But yeah, I'm, uh, I, I really enjoy sports betting. And we actually, it's going to be legal in New York sometime later this year. So I may never leave the state again. <laughs> if you go to a casino and, and, and you're going to play a table game and like poker is not a social game. Like you're, you know, it's, it's like I've been to a casino with my wife. She's like, go play poker. I'm like, no, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave you alone and ignore you for three hours. Like if you're going to play like a social game, like what, 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 what do you play? Uh, I mean, craps for fun. I mean, craps yeah. is a negative expectation game, but it's fun. Right. Craps is my, hey, I'm drinking and I don't want to think. And like, I'm just going to, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. That's the one. If it, I mean, I, I played, I, I learned how to count cards when I was in college. Um, and I would play blackjack counting cards and the blackjack just stopped being fun. It just, it was work. You know, it was, okay, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm not drinking, I'm just counting cards and I'm making the right bet. And so it's still, I associate blackjack with kind of that thinking. But yeah, if I'm, if I'm going to blow off steam and have fun, and, and really actually what I enjoy sitting in the sports book, watching 11, Rob Nyer asked me once on his podcast, like, how do you, how would, what would be your ideal way to watch a game? And obviously the first one would be to be at a, be at a good ball game. But the second is to be in a sports book with 11 games going at once, catching everything, seeing everything at the same time. I love that experience. I, yeah, I've said this before. I've only I've only been on one sporting event in the history of my life, and that was because I was in Las Vegas and someone told me to put some money on a college basketball game that I knew nothing about because it was a slam dunk win, and I did so. And I won. 
There you go. See, you're, you're, you're undefeated. Yeah, it was like New Mexico or New Mexico State or something. I'm like, I know nothing about this team. It's like, no, take the spread. They're going to crush them. And then it was it was a no-brainer. Um, did I ever tell you my my, the, my winter meetings blackjack story? This would have been, what, 08? Yeah, this is what it was. The, it was the Bellagio. And and I'm at the Bellagio, and I look over, and the Bellagio, um, you know, not the place to play 25-cent hands. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of an upper And so the cheapest blackjack table at the Bellagio is is a $5 table. So $5 a hand, right? And I look over and sitting there playing $5 a hand, the cheapest level of blackjack is Ellis Burks. No kidding. And I just went to my, and I, and I actually, I remember like actually like looking it up and going, man, Ellis Burks made $40 million in his career. And I thought maybe he's just learning the game. Maybe he's learning the game and he's going to play a little sticks. But I was amazed me that Ellis Burks was the guy playing $5 blackjack. See, I feel like it's whatever you enjoy. Yeah. I if I'm sitting with friends, I don't want to, you know, playing a five dollar blackjack. If I'm playing myself, I probably want to play a little bit higher limits. But it's also not looking down at people, oh well, you're playing cheap or poverty, whatever, man. Whatever you enjoy. Yeah, it was just funny. If you need to be Barkley betting fifty grand a hand, go crazy. And if you're enjoying <laughs> yourself playing five bucks a hand, go crazy too. Um, so we will talk about baseball at some point. Um, we'll get into, we'll talk about, uh, the, the fun that is the September standings. Uh, I do want to talk about some moves in front offices and what they mean and what they don't mean. Um, and then, uh, I got real annoyed this morning at all the award talk on Twitter and I want to go on a rant about that. Our special guest this week will be Jorge Castillo of the Los Angeles Times to talk about the Los Angeles Dodgers, which have obviously been quite a story on and off the field all year. Um, then we'll get into our musical guest, the amazing Circus Trees, which we will talk about. This is a phenomenal band. Uh, read your emails and catch up with Joe, which sounds like we have interesting things to talk about. Moment of culture and all that kind of stuff. Are you talking about baseball? Yeah. Wildcard races are fun. And, you know, everyone's been focusing on the American League and, and the surging Jays and their amazing offense. And, you know, the Red Sox just kind of treading water and the Yankees winning 50 in a row and losing 50 in a row and all that. Cause, and, and nobody is talking about the St. Louis Cardinals who are suddenly, if the season ended today, playing the Dodgers in the wild card game. Well, the Dodgers aren't, I mean, the, the Cardinals aren't fun. I think you're, I think you're right. That's a great point. The Cardinals aren't fun. Even good Cardinals teams have this kind of rectitude to them. You know, well, we're the, we're the, we're the Cardinals. Um, uh, <laughs> And, and even this team on the field. I mean, this is, I mean, Goldschmidt's a fun player. Arenado's a fun player. I like Harrison Bader. I don't think I think I like him more than Cardinals fans do. You can find <laughs> things to root for here, but it's also the National League wildcard race is is the the chase to eighty four wins. That's right. not as interesting as the as the Blue Jays going absolutely ham on the league. So I think that's a, there are a couple factors here. The Cardinals there, there's a tallest midget thing to the second wild card race, but really I think it's just the Cardinals aren't fun. Sorry, Will Leach. And do you, I mean, do you think part of it is just, and it's not a good assumption, but I think just like the assumption of, well, whoever makes that wild card spot is going to have to play the Dodgers or the Giants, so it doesn't matter. It's still just one game. Like, it's not, it's, that's a bad assumption. No, if that is the case, I think it's a mistake for that reason. There's absolutely no reason to think that a team's, it seems never going to be more than like a 60 40 dog in a game like that. Right. I mean, right. Not to bring it back to gambling sitting here, but um, I, I think we underestimate the potential for the, and I think that'd be a little silly, to be honest with you. If and when the 84 win Cardinals beat the 104 win Dodgers in the one game playoff, I don't think that's going to necessarily be the best thing for, for, for baseball. I mean, you play 162 games, finish 20 games ahead of a team, and you lose because, you know, Adam Wainwright throws a shutout. That's a little bit 
right. squirrely to me. But I really think a lot of it is just if it were the red. If it, remember, I mean, people were excited about the Padres. If this were the Padres, and the Padres will eventually go on a four-game winning streak some some point in the next two weeks because that's just the nature of this race, people will be more excited for that because it's the Padres or when it was the Reds leading. Then I just I honestly think it's got to do with the Cardinals. They're just boring. Yeah, I mean that's not the word. I would I would elect I would try to avoid that word, but yeah, that's what we're talking about here. They're unexciting. Yes. Um, and I think it's a good point. Like you know, it's it's it feels like you know the it's it, it's kind of a prettiest pig race in the National League. The American League is is kind of and I and obviously, um, I don't have a problem with this, so I don't I don't want to make an issue. But like it does. I mean, the fact that the Yankees and the Red Sox are part of this AL East race definitely makes it a, gives it a bigger footprint in the media, if you will. Um, but but right now, we are in legitimately a, a, an exact three-way tie um, with uh, the Yankees, the Blue Jays, the Red Sox, all currently, as we record this on Thursday afternoon, 18 games over 500. Um, it feels like it would be hard not to pick the Jays right now. And then the other team is just going to be who it feels like is, is going to be the team that screws up the least as opposed to the team that gets hot. Wildcard fever. Catch it. <laughs> so, you know, you kind of touched on this before and, you know, the Cardinals are going to play one of the two best teams in baseball, probably. Uh, how should the playoffs be be realistically structured? Like we can talk about you should be pure and you have to win the division, everything like that. But that's not going to happen because of money. Um how should they realistically structure the playoffs? It's hard because whenever I concede your point that the playoffs aren't going to get smaller, I come back to this idea of you have to reduce the regular season. Because if you're going to have a four-tier playoff structure with at least 12 teams, which seems likely starting next year, playing 162 games to get to that point is just silly. I think if, we're, if we were going to sit down and say, here's a blank sheet of paper, what should baseball look like? it'd probably be closer to 130, maybe a 120-game regular season. Also not going to happen, but you've got a footprint issue where, okay, all of this kind of happened over time, right? Nobody sat down and said, this is what we want baseball to look like. That conversation has to happen. You know, it used to be 154 games over like 140 days with doubleheaders. Then it was 162, and there were a lot of doubleheaders at the time of expansion. But you mm-hmm. only had one level of playoffs, the World Series. Well, then you added the second level of playoffs, and then double headers went away. And all of a sudden, you're playing 162 games over 183 days, now 187 days. And you've tacked on this, uh, another level, and then with the wild card games, another level of playoffs. You're just running out of time because it's not the NFL or the NBA where you can just say, we're just spread like kudzu over the calendar. You've got weather issues, not even so much in the fall anymore, but in the spring. Right. There, are, there are two to three weeks in spring. You shouldn't be playing baseball. Um, and I grew up in the Northeast. You grew up in the Midwest. You know that that's not yeah, baseball. I, I, I remember watching Miguel Cabrera hit a home run in the snow opening day this year. That was that was his God. That that was this year. That was yeah. this year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think baseball would be better off for a lot of reasons. Getting to like an April fifteenth to September fifteenth schedule, maybe even shorter than that. Getting the playoffs started, having less overlap with the NFL. Look, I'm a baseball guy. I know you have no use for the NFL. But we have to be realistic. The NFL runs the world. Yep, and yep. a two-month overlap with the NFL is bad. Is bad. I mean, I remember the ESPN used to not do, not not show a Sunday night football game. Because they'd have football. On the, no, no, a Sunday night football game on the, during the World Series because they just figured nobody's going to watch. They don't do that anymore. 
They know that if they put a football game up against the World Series, people are going to watch the football game. They're going to do just fine. Baseball's got to kind of almost say, hey, look, let's... So when you ask, I, I, this is a very long answer. For yeah, I mean, you're, you're also breaking the realistically part of this question. I, I get that, but I, I, I'm, I struggle with a structure that works when we're going to possibly see this year the problems with playing 162 games and then having a one game or a best of three. Everybody says, you know, the wild card should be best of three. There's really not that much difference in terms of probability between a best of one, a best of three, a best of five, a best of seven. You just, you're not gaining a whole lot. Once you decide you're having playoffs, you're just not, you got to get to like a best of 89 to you guarantee, right. to, to you assure that the better team advances. Um, one of the problems with 12 is that you're, if you go to 12 and a best of, even a best of three, you're sitting teams down for a week. As, as it is right now, you're sitting down for about four days. You, you sit them down for about a week. You've got travel concerns. Um, I, I'm, if you, if I, if I had to say what, if we say it's going to be 12 and we have to do that, I would really like to see something that breaks divisions and gets us out of the situation we have this year where you've got, what is it, four of the 13 teams with a positive run differential are in one division. Mm-hmm. Um, you're go, we're talking about the Cardinals, but the Cardinals aren't as good as seven, eight AL teams, and they're going to be in the playoffs. Um, even within the American League, or really the National League is a better example here, I mean, who's more qualified for the playoffs, the Padres or the Braves? I mean, that's a, that's a coin flip right now. Um, I think that getting away from divisions and, and unbalanced schedules would be helpful because right now it affects the, the, the unbalanced schedules with a wild card is an intolerable issue. It's typically an issue in the American League East and has been for the you know, all of these years we've had the wild card, but you're seeing it with these divisions getting more and more unbalanced where who you play in your division for 76 games, it starts to affect your chance to make the playoffs for the wild card. In a big way, yeah. I mean, would it make sense to kind of go pseudo NBA style and just say the top four teams in the American League, the top four teams in the National League make the playoffs and just and no wild card and just like five 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 seven seven and maybe 154 games. Well even the well the NBA lot sixteen in. So they they do yeah, they definitely. they assure that the division winners all get in. And but that's basically what we have in baseball right now. We just have a, a smaller number of teams getting in. I don't think baseball's gonna get away from divisions or the unbalanced schedule. Um, I think they love the, yeah. the nineteen Yankees Red Sox games that most yeah, of us were sick of. Um, I don't like the I've never liked the unbalanced schedule, and some of that is growing up without one. I go back to the '80s, and the '80s didn't have an unbalanced schedule. The National League did, the American League didn't. Right. But I I don't like only seeing teams once a year. I, you a team comes in, you know, the Brewers come into town in, in April, and you don't see them again for the next five months. I but you see the, the the Diamondbacks play the Giants like every week for four weeks for a stretch there. I mean, it just mm-hmm. it forces all these weirdness to the schedule. So I'd I'd like to see a balanced schedule. I mean, it, assuming. If we make the assumption that playoffs are going to be 12 teams, let's at least get to a balanced schedule that that takes some of these issues out of it. Um, I, I I want to talk about some things we've seen in the in the front office world in the last couple of weeks. And we saw um, last week we saw the Royals promote Dayton Moore to president uh, and JJ Piccolo uh, to general manager. Um, we saw the Rays move Eric Neander up to um, a president title. Uh, and right now, and, and I'll talk about like the Rays have no GM and no AGMs, um, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, the Rangers made a bunch of moves, adding like VPs and senior director titles to a bunch of people. Um, it's that time of year. It's staffing time. Uh, most people's contracts are either renewed or run out at the end of October. Um, and when you, I'm always kind of amazed when you see this kind of stuff happen. 80% of the time, the Tigers did something. The Tigers made two people AGM, two people who are, 
really very impressive young executives and Sam Menzen and Jay Satori. Um, and when you see people get this tap happen to them, 80% of the time, their job doesn't change at all, literally. Their roles and responsibilities don't change at all. Um, it's just, it's what's called in the industry, the title game. And, you know, and it basically, it's how teams keep their employees. So um, there's a permission system in baseball. So if you are running a team and you want to talk to someone with another team, you have to ask for permission. And most teams don't allow permission unless the new position is a promotion for that person. And so now by making Eric Neander the president of baseball operations, there is no promotion on top of that. And so now like the Mets who are generally expected to have an overhaul and be looking for a new number one, can't call on Eric Neander because if they ask the raise for permission, the raise will go, well, that's not a promotion. And so that's why you see this thing happen. It, it protects people. And so if you want to talk to, you know, Menzen or Sartori with the Tigers, you'd have to be offering them a GM job because they're AGMs. If, you know, and it goes all the way down the line, like senior director, like all of a sudden you can't hire them for a director job. And like this is happening all over baseball right now. The Cubs are, are you know, started a GM search. You, you know, you promote J.J. Piccola to GM and all of a sudden the Cubs can't consider him. And, and he's really one of the more well-liked and well-respected people in baseball. And so all of a sudden like that locks him in with the Royals. And this goes all the way down the line and, and front office employees are under contract and they can't talk to other teams. And it's very, um, it's a, it's a team friendly arrangement. Like you're stuck there and you can't pursue other opportunities unless your contract expires. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's something that's going to be addressed in any, any sort of new way. Obviously there's no union for front office employees. There's no sort of CBA. They're just kind of stuck with it. And, and while it works for people making tons of money, like people in those GM jobs or like these people getting, you know, added senior director to their title. And you know, in the Rays case, like I'm sure they're holding titles. They're just holding back on titles. Like there's someone. And if, you know, if, if there's a guy with a VP senior director title and some team calls and wants to interview them and, and the Rays get called in all the time, because obviously they're very good at what they do. All of a sudden that person gets promoted to AGM and they turn down the interview. And it's, it's, it's really unfair to, to, to the employees themselves. They get kind of stuck there. Um, and I'm not saying he might, that person might be super happy with the raise and I'm sure the promotion comes with some more money and good for, and good for that person. Um, but at the same time, like you end up with in this, whenever I see these stories happen, like, oh, they promoted this guy, promoted that guy, like their job doesn't change at all. It's, it's just the title game and it's just to protect guys from, to protect teams to, to, to keeping their, their, their best and brightest, if you will. I remember this, this is a fairly recent phenomenon and, um, I'm, thinking about the first few of these that happened. And it was, you know, there used to be a manager, a general manager, an owner. And now mm -hmm. we've got very complicated front offices, which has made the game. I mean, obviously, it's it's a more complicated game, and teams have gotten good at bringing in talent. But sometimes I have to sit there and go, well, if I, if I talk about Billy Bean, I mean, that's really David Forst. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I am, I've actually started to lose track of how many of these actual decision makers, and, and you've been, obviously, you know this better than I do, there really is no Imperial GM anymore. I want to say Dombrowski, but even in Philly now, I don't really think he's that guy. You know, it's it's a team now. And keeping all of these guys on your team involves these title bumps. I guess what I would ask you is, you know, this isn't involuntary, right? I mean, you can't just walk into a room and say, poof, you're now a vice president. You can't sign anywhere. There's got to be some agency on, on the part of the employee, right? No. I mean, no, you can just walk in and go, congratulations. And we have quick. our clip, and we have our, our, our clip for the uh, Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the exactly. Um, no, no. I mean, you can, yeah, you can walk into the office and go, congrats, Joe, we're making you an AGM. And, and, and this is part of the system that really, I think, kind of stinks is like, um, 
you're let's say you're Joe Sheehan, right? And you're senior director of baseball operations, right? And and people really like you and you're really good at your job. And yeah, and then team B calls me and says, Hey, we want to interview Joe. They actually they have to submit a request through Major League Baseball's office first, and I get the request, and then we speak. And then team B says, We really want to interview Joe for an AGM job. That's a promotion. And I go, Yeah, you're right. Uh, and then I walk into your office and go, Congrats, Joe, you're AGM. I am not under any obligation whatsoever to tell you that a team called and asked about you. How many of these promotions are reactive to something like that versus something the team wanted to do anyway? Um, I think I, I want to say friendly. It's 50-50. Wow. Um, uh, you know, and a lot of times there are teams that do have a policy and it's, it's actually a minority of teams that do have a policy of they will always inform someone when permission has been asked. Um, but there are plenty of teams who just absolutely don't. I know some of the cases where teams were not told about permission being asked on, on that person. You know, and that person just got a promotion and a raise. And they're like, oh, great, I'm doing a great job. And they just wanted to keep them. And they probably deserved a promotion if they wanted to keep them. Um, but, yeah, that's that's the world here right now. And it, and it's, it happened. It was quite common, kind of the, the, the mid to lower level. And it's really kind of only over like the past decade or so we started to see that I need to create a promotion above GM to keep those people. And that's where all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, like, you're right. I mean, like a decade ago, we didn't have all these president titles. We had a general, you had a general manager and that was the dude um, or the dudette. And now it's, it's. Um, no, it was the dude. At, at that time. Yeah. And, um, and now you have this president titled who's kind of above the GM and like the, so the GM's really kind of an a GM now, but you give them the GM title so you can keep them. Uh, and I think it's just going to kind of keep expanding. And I've heard someone mention that like, the next level of this is going to be. Um, and people are, you know, have already kind of mentioned this kind of with, with the rumors of Theo to the Mets of uh, putting them on the board of directors and making them part of the ownership group and giving them a piece of the rock. And then you'll have a level above that now. Well, Bean was the first to have the ownership before right. he had to divest because did he end up divesting because of that Red Sox deal or? I'm not totally sure to be honest with you if he is or not. There was some, there was not Red Sox, um, Red Ball. Right. Red Ball, um, yeah, I, I it it's it's hard to gather a lot of. Um, this is probably the, the the largest public conversation with this where this is happening because, you know, let's face it, you know, smart, mostly white guys aren't going to be the most sympathetic. Uh, you're not going to have a, the Twitter feed talking about you know how how awful this is for these guys. But anything right. that's anti-competitive is going to to get on me. I mean, we've seen this with the the rise of anti of uh, uh, non-competes in contracts down as far as like fast food workers and hairdressers. This right. is all rampant now. And I, you know, this will be the next, uh, the next public battle, I think for antitrust, but you just, there's not a lot of people that are going to get up and arms because JJ Piccolo got a, a title bump that keeps him from you know going out and getting one of the 30 most desirable jobs in America. Uh, I, I do think though, that this is the kind of thing where if you actually had a central control, if the commissionership was what the commissionership is perceived to be, that's where you come in and say, no, you can't do this. You've, we've got to let people move freely throughout the industry. But mm -hmm. because the it's not actually like that, because baseball is 30 fiefdoms that the commissioner actually works under. Works for, yes. Works for. You can actually do whatever you want. And like I said, it's not like front office members are going to unionize. You know, it's just, it's a really tough spot. And I think, well, let me ask you another question. How many of these come with salary bumps? Um, most, just because you change their title and so you got to do something. So, but it's not like they're getting, it's not as it, it's probably not the money they would get if they change jobs, right? Um, I, it's 
Generally, I bet around there. There's a general thought. It's it's like uh, you know, there's a general for you know what a director gets paid and 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 what an AGM gets paid. The AGM number is the weird one. Like that can very uh, be as low as two and can approach a million. How many titles? No, I'm not going to show you salaries, but how many titles did you have in your seven years in Houston? Three, and um, I started off. My first title was coordinator pro scouting. After one year, I got promoted to director of pro scouting, and my job didn't change at all. Um, nor did my salary. Um, and then uh, the last three years was special assistant player personnel. And I did have one. I did. I have one permission that I know about because I actually took the permission it was for an agm interview um and it's a weird time like you get like if you're interviewing with a team all of a sudden you are cut off from the team you work for yeah they turn they turn off your email and your access to the internal systems to to to, to protect their intellectual property um uh and and it's a job i'm i finished runner up for and i'm the way things went with that team i'm really glad i didn't get it um uh you know not that things ended up greatly where i was <laughs> but um you know, it, it it was it was a very weird process, and then it's like a sh- super short window. Like you get, you know, it's usually like three to seven days um, once permission is granted. It, it feels like baseball is internally more vicious than it has been at any at any prior time. And again, I'm going off. This is a lot of reading and research and talking to people. I never had a job in the game, but I think this is probably something that has changed dramatically in the last twenty years. Yeah, for sure. It's not one big family anymore. And there was no. a time where baseball was like that. Yeah. And it's it's just not that way anymore. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a, a very strange. And it's a very it's a strange time of year that made me think about this because like it, it's, you know, like I said contracts run out or get renewed by the end of October and so this is when this stuff happens. Um and it just made me think about it. Um, and you and you just didn't want to talk about awards. Let's get into awards. <laughs> so there's been a uh, incredible amount of talk on Twitter recently um, about awards, and um, some of that revolves around the American League MVP and people like Shohei Otani and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Salvador Perez, and then there's talk about the National League Cy Young and and uh, Brewers dudes and Dodgers dudes and other dudes. And people getting so worked up about it on September 16th. And can I be honest with you, Joy? It's annoying as hell. <laughs> Better than August 15th. There's, you're doing two things that I don't understand. First of all, like you're getting really mad about something that hasn't happened yet. Which is something I try to avoid. Like, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm so, I'll be so pissed if this happens. Well, you're pissed now and it hasn't happened. Like, I don't understand why you're getting worked up now, because it might happen. And the other thing is, don't give a shit about awards. Stop it. It doesn't matter whether your favorite player finishes first or fifth in the MVP or Cy Young Award race should not change the way you look at the player or think about the player or value the player in any way whatsoever. So why do you care so much? I've never understood this. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm happy for the player or, or, or you know, feel like the player ever talk. But, like, it, if it doesn't change how you feel about the player because a group of, of BBWA writers, many of whom I like plenty, decide to vote this way, 
why do you care? Why are people so worked up about this? Why does this matter? It, I just don't get it. It baffles me. It absolutely baffles me. Well, I'm a rehabilitated awards guy. <laughs> so I got I got to be careful about coming down too hard on this because I, I started, I mean, I was one of the guys in the middle of the Trout Cabrera Wars nine years ago now. Um, so I got to be careful about how, how much I agree with you because I'm more or less where you are now. Um, I think the fan thing is frustrating because so much of fandom now seems tied to getting respect from the media. Like it can't just be, this is my opinion about this player, this team, this decision, this manager. If you say something bad, you're hating. That's a word I would really like to take out of the language. Haters, hating, die on this hill. Like, no, I just had a, had a baseball opinion that was backed up by these facts, and I don't really care that much about your team, sir. Um, but so much, it's identity now. It's like, if you don't think Shohei Otani is the MVP, you hate my Angels. If right. you don't think Max Scherzer is the Sayago Award you hate my Dodgers. No, I really don't. I, don't. I don't hate anybody. And it comes from the other way, too. It's like, well, you're just a Yankee fan. Dude, I had posters on my wall when I was 12. I've been doing this for 25 years. You really think I'm sitting down to a, a laptop and making these, these analysis that are my career based on the fact that Willie Randolph stood over me for, for eight years when I was a kid? Right. Um, but no, I, I will say that I think awards do have a certain, certain importance because they are a historical record of what people thought mm. of these players in this year. And they feed into decisions. I mean, I, I look at the one I always go to is 87. If Alan Trammell is correctly the MVP that year instead of George Bell, does Alan Trammell go into the Hall of Fame through the front door instead of the back door? Uh, you go do you know, Reigns in '87 as well. If he wins the MVP, does he? There was a there, there was like a Ruben Sierra year too, right? Ruben Sierra, Robin Yount '89. Yeah, and that's not gonna that's not a Hall of Fame decision, but I mean, it goes to how we think of these players. Dave Steve, Dave Steve was the best pitcher in the American League like four out of six years in the '80s and never sniffed a Cy Young award. And that affects the historical opinion of him. Pete Vukovic, who was like the sixth best starter in the American League, he might have been the sixth best starter in the American League East, won the Cy Young Award in 82. And for the rest of his life, he's Cy Young Award winner. We go with All-Stars, too. If you're like a, a seventh reliever injury replacement, and it's the only good year of your career, for the rest of your career, you're an All-Star. Right. For the rest of your life, you're an All-Star. So this stuff does, I think this stuff matters a bit. When it comes to how we decide players, I think in the moment it matters less because whoever wins the American League Most Valuable Player Award, this was Shohei Otani's year. We're going to remember it as Shohei Otani's year. It's like right. uh, the 2008 Home Run Derby. Nobody remembers Justin Morneau won it because that was the year Josh Hamilton hit 700 home runs off the bud sign in right center field. Mm -hmm. So this gets to your point, which is that it doesn't really affect how you think of these players, but I do think it affects how the next generation. And the next yeah. generation of fans look at the players. I've also, when you're a kid, you don't really understand the process. But when you realize now that the voting is a random sample of 30, somewhat random sample of 30 writers each year, it's not like the BBWAA handing it down on stone tablets who the most valuable player was. It's a subset of a subset. And if you look at the way the, the chapters are done now, it's not even like two beat writers from each city anymore. It's, right. You know, random, uh, they're uh, voted writers from Japan. Or there are some places that have 7,000 writers, so Ben Lindbergh's never going to get a vote in New York. And there are some places that are scraping, and that's where the, they'll always assign right. a, a Japanese reporter to come right. out of Phoenix or something. So yeah, or once you realize this isn't like, you know, biblical, if I want to know who the best, if I want to know the MVP was in 1983, I'll, I'll look that up. If I want to know who the best player was, I'm not using the MVP award anymore. 
Yeah. But I do think that changes over time. We, when I want to know who the best player was in 1965, I've got to use the MVP voting to a certain extent. I've got to look and see what the contemporary analyses of these players were. And there were a lot of blips. I mean, the 80s voting was a nightmare. But I'm not quite as dismissive. I will say this. I've come to this point, though. I don't talk about any of this stuff in season, in part because it changes. Like, if you're asking me what my Cy Young vote in August is, dude, there's still 25% of the season left. These right. guys are separated by less than a win. Can we see how they finish the season? I'll do my ballot, though, and I'll take it very, you know, my fake ballot. And I'll take it very seriously on whatever next month, two weeks from Monday is. Um, I, I think that there's, there's value in putting down that record of who you thought the most valuable player was. Where you lose me is the parsing of the word valuable. That's the part that absolutely drives me up a wall. It's, well, valuable doesn't mean the same. Yes, it does. They just, they picked the word valuable 100 years ago. Well, what, what, what does it mean to you? Best. Is, okay, now, is that purely a, I mean, do you just line up their, their, their war of preference? On field performance. I'm not, I don't, I don't use any one thing, especially since I don't, I've moved away from war, all the war calculator. I mean, if I'm doing a study or something, if I want shorthand, yeah. fine. If I'm actually trying to figure out who's better, I really try to pull out the different elements because mm-hmm. defensive performance measurements are all over the map. So I'm looking at offense and position, and then I'm gathering as much information about defense as I can. I'm not really lining up wars, except as a, okay, let me take the top 20 guys in war, put them into this list so I make sure I catch everybody. And those are the guys I'll look at. Exactly. Um, so there's there's that. But no, I, I think this idea, team performance shouldn't matter is what I'm getting at. Um, the, the, the way we kind of parse this to make for interesting air quotes around interesting conversations has driven me nuts over the last 10, you know, we, this is kind of a fairly recent invention too, um, because it creates content. Pretending that you don't know what the word valuable is c- creates content. <laughs> and it just, it, it bugs me because this is, this should be a fairly straightforward conversation that is now no longer. St- if you wanted to debate with me, who's been better this year between you know, the NL, the various NL candidates, you've got playing time issues. You've got defensive performance. You've got how much do we wait? base running versus defense. And I think there's interesting conversations to be had. But what shouldn't matter is whether this team had 87 wins and this team had 77. Yeah, that to no, me is for... not a valid, that is just not a valid viewpoint. Get, making it the best player on the team. <clears throat> there was also a stretch where it was the best player on the team that made the playoffs by the least. And at what point, I mean, that, that we're right. just twisting ourselves into knots for no reason. So if you won 95 games, your performance didn't matter. If you won 75 games, Performance didn't matter, but if you won 87 and just squeaked into the playoffs, my God, you were valuable. <laughs> uh, as we speak, uh, Salvador Perez just hit his 45th home run of the year. Wow. Who saw that coming? Um, this I'm is kind just of floored a, by, this, by this season. It's amazing. It's such a strange year. Um, I, I kind of want to go on a tangent off that. You know, you, you talked about you know being asked what you know who the Cy Young Award winner is in, in August, and I, I think we're seeing this now. Um Offense is way up this month. I don't think the ball's changed. I, I think we're seeing a, a real result of 2020, and pitchers are absolutely gassed. Um, and, you know, I've watched guys, and they just don't look the same right now. And I wonder how that's going to affect what we see in the playoffs as well. Can we talk about the long-term trend, though? It's not. I agree with you that 2020 has been a factor, no doubt. But at what point has baseball as a industry... I'm making a lot of air quotes today, like that girl in Heather's. Uh, I'm. At what point does baseball's trend of putting less and less on individual pitchers 
Make it hard for them to find the fourteen thousand innings it takes to get through a baseball season. Not for, I'm sorry, yeah. 14, 1,400 a team, forty-three thousand innings to yeah. get through a season. So I think the two trends have, have can can converged this year, where you had the long-term trend of running out of pitchers and the short-term trend of we're using pitchers a lot less this year because we're scared and it's going to produce September. I looked the other day; September was the highest-scoring month so far this year. Yeah. Um, which has just never happened before. Right. It's not the baseball. It's not. No. It's, I mean, the baseball has been the baseball. All year. They, I don't think they changed the baseball in season. I think no. we've seen the effects of the sticky stuff has been a small reduction in strikeout rate without really a whole small. lot. Of, really small. Really. Yeah. It was a 1% when I last checked. Um, and then, yeah, that's pretty much been it. So, no, this is a running out of pitchers thing. There are teams, you know, the Orioles had a, I mean, the Orioles are basically a, a minor league staff at this point. It's John. It's not, and a bad minor league staff. Yeah. Like, it, it's amazing. Like, you look at the half of those guys, like, had five, six ERAs in AAA. The, the, the Blue Jays scored those 22 runs on Sunday. I went and looked, and like I say, it was four pitchers who had not established themselves as AAA pitchers yet. Right. They had just not proven they could even pitch at the high minor level. Um, and it's not just, the, I mean, in every team now is carrying 14 or 15 pitchers and three to six on every staff, every staff really don't belong there, except the Rays, of course, because the Rays have 20, a they have 27 relievers <laughs> who are good. <laughs> I'm talking about bucking the trend, the, the industry trend, but no, I, I'm more interested because I think the, the effects of 2020 will wash out over a couple of years, but I think at some point baseball has got to start thinking, look, we can't keep training starters. I mean, remember just in the time that we've been baseball fans. Starters have gone from going 40 and 250, 40 and 270, whatever, to 35 and 230, to 32 and 200. And now it's like 28 and 180. Relievers have gone from... 28 and 180 is a guy giving you bulk. Yeah, I mean, that's, six, that's six innings a start. That's a little more. Uh, 28 and 180 is actually not going to happen. That's seven innings, almost seven, seven innings a start. But, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and relievers have gone from you know 120 over you know 80 appearances and slowed down. The, the, the league leader in reliever relief innings this year is going to be 80, and they don't. We've eliminated the multi-inning reliever. I mean, they exist, but they don't exist as a role. Yeah, I've actually always argued and, and did this internally that that should come back. Like there's there are dudes who I think you could get 7120 out of, and why doesn't someone try? I would settle for just the guy who throws eight effective pitches in the eighth goes back out for the ninth. Yeah. You see this every single day. It's amazing. I totally agree with you. I I, I really think we got to get away from and I under and we but we've created a not just a culture but a, a culture for the pitchers themselves. Right. Where they they I know they honestly there, there are plenty of relievers who I've spoken to are not comfortable going back out. But to me that's a that's a, that's a That's a problem. problem. That, yeah. But you and this was a you baked this. I felt this way about the closers too. Like we've trained pitchers to think this way. Pitchers didn't think this way forty years ago. Mm. Oh, I have to get the ninth. I have to get the ninth. And we've built this into pitchers. And I think over forty years now, we have to get out of this. And it's going to take a long time to do it. And this is why my favorite response is a cap on available pitchers. Um, whatever you want to put the number out. Derek Gold has suggested uh, that it be oh, across a series. Fine, but. This 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 is a real problem for baseball because it it touches everything. It touches the strikeout rate. It touches the watchability of the game. It what, touches what, the. How does the cap on available pitchers work? Like for uh, like you can't have more than twelve on a roster. Is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I when I first suggested it a few years back, I said eleven. They were going to do thirteen last year, which is right. I mean, it's like saying I can only have fifteen Oreos at a sitting. <laughs> it's just it, you're not really changing things, but if you you've got to get to a number that forces teams to start developing pitchers for multi-inning roles. That's mm-hmm. the big thing. I think it's harder for starters because we know what the third the third time around effect is. 
Right. I mean, what, anytime I get into these conversations, the point I try to make is that there's no one lever. You're staring at a board with 50 levers. And if you say, okay, we've got to cap the number of pitchers on a roster, you pull that level lever. Okay, well, now you've also got to fix the baseball because pitchers are going to be more hittable. Right. So you need a baseball that doesn't fly as far. And if you do that, you really want to modify the strike zone so that pitchers are you know, throwing actual hittable strikes as opposed to the ones we have now. There's just no one fix. But uh, the, the, the thing I think you can do from the commissioner's office is the 11-person cap on, on a roster. It would be 11 guys available on a roster on a given day. And <clears throat> you've got to also man- manage it. I mean, I would, I would go to some kind of NHL model where you had a 28-man roster and like 24 were available for the game. Oh, I didn't know they did that. Uh, I'm sorry, did I say NHL? NFL. NFL has a 53-man roster. You declare 45 active for the game. Oh, okay. Um, the the winter leagues do that in a much different way. Like the AFL does that too. Because the winter leagues, like yeah, like you know the 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 like Lise's Dominican League roster is somewhere around 100, honestly. And then they have to and then they have to declare at the beginning of the day. These are the 26 we're rolling out with. And I, I think that's probably the you know, a way that baseball could do it. Obviously, you'd have to you know, figure out how service time works, and mm-hmm. it's a little beyond the scope of this podcast. But I, the the big the, the big point I want to make here is that you've got to start getting more innings out of your pitchers, and I mean this at a global level, right? Because how far how far down do you take this? I mean, do you eventually say we're going to have forty five? Because if you look at forty man rosters now, they're like 60 percent pitchers. There are teams that when they have a position player injury, don't have an available player. Right, because there's so, so many pitchers. There was a tie, there was a Tigers playoff series middle of the decade where they were basically one injury from not being able to replace them. They had like one guy on their forty, one position player on their forty, who was actually a major league player. Because some you know some spots on the forty are prospects who are just there and they've never played in the majors. But you've got teams now with 23, 20, When I checked on opening day, it was like twenty three was the most pitchers, and nobody had more hitters than pitchers on their forty. So it's just it's all of these things that are kind of coming together. But I mean, to kind of go back to your original point, what we're seeing in this September isn't just a pandemic. And I think if MLB says it's just a pandemic thing, they're missing the larger picture. Right, right. And 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 teams do, you know, you start the year um, and you do count innings and you start saying, how are we going to get that 1,400 whatever innings? You're like, well, hopefully we can get 150 from this dude, 180 from this guy. And, you know, if he stays healthy and this guy can give us 60, we're at 1,220. We're going to have to lean on someone from the mind. Like, you start doing that innings, man. That's why I've always thought, and I've always said this, and if, if I they were dumb enough to give me a Cy Young vote, like, honestly, one of the columns I would look at very closely is innings pitch because it's so important these days. That's right. Well, it's one of the reasons why war works because war is a counting stat. So it's right. going to be baked in there. There was the year... I voted for Snell the year he had like 180, and Verlander was at like 210. But there was a reasonable argument for Verlander that year because of those extra marginal. Because the, yeah, the innings. Innings, are innings are incredible. Innings are more important now than they used to be because so few guys provide them. We like I say that the 30, the 32 inning 200. Excuse me, 30, 32 inning. There are plenty of 32 inning guys. 32 start 200 inning pitcher. Even that guy is going extinct. Right, um, and right now. And it's very important to note this includes players who are on the injured list. The Tampa Bay Rays have 33 pitchers on their 40-man roster. Yeah. Yeah, I remember having to go in and tease out who was on the DL, but yeah, 33. And, and this considered the roster churn issue, and you know, can we tighten that up a bit? I mean, mm-hmm. Lewis Head has been up and down, I think it's 21 times now this year. 
It's amazing, isn't it? I did this. Is, that's just no way to. That's no way to treat your people. I'm sorry. I, 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 well, it's funny because I actually, you know, I wrote last week about the Rays bullpenning games and how it's always made me. I've always had a, a theory that, that there's no way you can do that in the playoffs and expect it to work. And and after looking closer at the data, I was like, my answer was, well, it might work. And um, but you know, I talked to some people um with other teams who have like advanced them and one guy said i you know i'm happy to talk to you about what the rays are doing on a, on a field on the baseball field but i want to make sure i point I, I i make the point that like the rays have created a culture there for their pitchers where they're ready to go whenever in terms of both being on the team and not on the team but also in terms of pitching the fifth or pitching the eighth and and most bullpens and relievers are, are creatures of habit, and like they 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 want to know what their roles are. And for the Rays to create this one that doesn't have that, I think is something they deserve credit for as well. And not I'm not the guy who necessarily praises the Rays as much as, as others, but like he he made like a real strong point. Like you got to give them all this credit for having all these guys who are ready to go when they need to go, both in terms of simply being on the roster and when they are inserted into a game. So I've always thought this has been my argument about the closer the closer myth and the closer idea. I think that if you just teach your, I've always felt that it was something that you could, that we've bred into a generation of pitchers and we could breed out of it. If not at the industry level, we've seen now the Rays do that. And you see it. It's not even just a closer thing. It's, you know, Andrew Kittredge will pitch the fifth one day, he'll pitch the eighth the next. Mm-hmm. And they just, I, this idea that pitchers have to know their role. Yeah, there's pocket matchups. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's. Your role is to get guys out. And I'm not saying it, it's random. I think that if, I think when Cash goes into a game, he has something of a plan. He's not also, oh, yeah. as best no, as they, I can tell too, he's really good about not getting guys up and not using them. And that to me, that's they huge. have They have a matrix. I mean, it's really like, like they have a matrix for every game and it is very much like who's coming up. If it's three, four, five, it's pitcher A. If it's five, six, seven, it's pitcher B. Like they have a matchup matrix based on who's coming up. I love that. And then it, the, the, the relievers then can look at that and say, hey, I got to be ready for this. Right, it, right. If they don't, it, they, okay, they didn't score here, so it's going to be five, six, seven. That's going to be me. You know, I, I know. I do praise the Rays. I, I, I know that there are a lot of people now who see them as the the, the, the great devil in baseball, but um, I, I think they do a, an incredible job just because they don't sign free agents. Look, the Rays have the best record in baseball the last three years. They're fourth best in baseball since two thousand six. You know, I, you don't spend money for the sake of spending money. And if you're winning that much and not spending money, I don't know how you can reasonably argue that, well, you guys should have signed Mike Moustakas. Mm-hmm. How much better are you going to do? Right. But I, I do wonder like how much better they would be if they signed one real free agent. Well, I wanted them to sign Harper a couple of years ago. Because right. obviously they could afford it. And that's the kind of guy they should go get. And I still, I think there's, a, there's an argument for them going out and doing that. Because the gap between what they do spend and what they could spend is where you fit the six-win free agent. Right, I don't. I agree with you. They shouldn't sign Mike Musakis, but they should sign Bryce Harper or Max Scherzer. Scherzer's sure, the guy that comes know. to mind this winter. Right, but I just, I, I again, it's how much better you reasonably get. Because we know people say, "Well, they didn't win the World Series." Well, you know, you're, you're who wins the World yeah. Series isn't a function of who you signed. Welcome to your dice rolls. Welcome to the, exactly. And, and I, I like that you and I agree on this because you spent time in the game and you're more of a traditional mindset. And I like that we both agree that he, he as much as you try to work on the playoffs. No. Look, it's two good baseball teams playing a best of seven. Yep, it's an idiot. throw a dart. Yeah, it's like that's the thing. Like you said this before. Like even the one game, like Dodgers Cardinals, worst possibilities is somewhere around sixty forty. Yeah, it, it, it Bueller versus John even Lester. if they yeah yeah, it, yeah you, you, J, Dodgers J. will be like Hap. 
Dodgers would be like a minus two fifty favorite or something, which is you know seventy thirty or something like that. It's yeah. If it, 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 if the Cardinals win that, you will be surprised, but you won't be. You can't be shocked by any baseball event because that's that's just how it works. Like people you know, will lose their minds, and it's just yes. one baseball game, man. right? Like NFL teams go fifteen and one. Like NBA teams go yep. sixty five and seventeen. I'm doing the math in my head. Like baseball teams, like the best win. The, the the historic teams win two out of three. The Orioles are a bad example this year because the Orioles just don't have a, a major league pitching staff. But if you were to take the Royals and put them into the brackets, they'd win the World Series five to ten percent of the time. Yeah, that's just the nature of the game. And to me, my arguments tend to be external, arguing back against people who want the playoffs to be the great test of will and who's a champion. I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea that the regular season tells me who the best team is, and the playoffs are just a fun tournament. Oh, I think that's totally fair. Yeah, I absolutely. Would, I can appreciate it on that level, and where I just get frustrated is where we decide that you know, it it, it determines your character who won a best of seven baseball series. It's just that's yeah. the part where I really tilt. <laughs> Imagine me tilting. <laughs> so we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to uh, the great Jorge Castillo about the Los Angeles Dodgers. So stick around.
back to the podcast. Special guest time. Our special guest is the beat reporter covering the Los Angeles Dodgers for a little newspaper called the Los Angeles Times and joining us from what I'm sure are luxurious accommodations in the city of Angels, Los Angeles. It's Jorge Castillo. Jorge, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, you know, the Dodgers, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but the Dodgers have won something like 30 of their last 40 games. Um, and at the same time, they haven't really gained an inch in the Giants, who have also won somewhere around 30 of their last 40 games. Is there any sense of of frustration and or urgency to the team because of what's going on and, and, and kind of the importance of, of winning the division as opposed to getting into the wild card and being in a coin flip game? Yeah, I think urgency for sure. I don't know about frustration. It's just a matter of the Giants are, are winning. It seems like everything's breaking the Giants' way right now. It's how, it's how the Dodgers sort of talk about it behind the scenes. Um, everything's sort of going right for the Giants right now. And uh, the Dodgers, you know, it's weird covering a team that's playing 640 baseball and, you know, fans are going crazy and it's always about, you know, they're not catching the Giants. They're about to win 102, 103 games, maybe more. Um, and they might just be in a, like you said, a coin flip game for the wild card. Uh, so it's, it's a really strange dynamic covering this team right now, uh, with this playoff system. You know, uh, three years ago, Jorge, the Dodgers went down to the wire with the Rockies and they were really fighting for that playoff spot. <clears throat> uh, most of the other years they've had the last few weeks of September to prep for the playoffs. They're kind of in an in-between spot this year. How do you see them kind of managing the idea of, well, we've got to try to win the division, but we also don't want to be burnt out going into October. Yeah, I think they're trying to win the division for sure. I think that's the way you have to go about it. Um, it's a coin flip game, that game, whether it's going to be against the Cardinals or the Reds or the, or the Padres. It's looking like the Cardinals right now, right? But uh, it's it's tough. You know, you, you really – that division matters. Um, you know, it's – and then in DS, you get you get home field. Um, it, it's a big sort of – you know, these next two weeks are, are huge. And I, and I think these guys sense that. Um, luckily for them, they're starting rotation. They have five guys now. They have like Tony Gonsolin and Clayton Kershaw are back. Um, they actually have a five-man rotation for the first time in a couple of months, which is strange to say. These are the Dodgers, right? But they've been going bullpen games a lot this season. Um, as as have the two of the best teams in the league, the Rays and the well, two of the other best teams, the Rays and the Giants. But um, I think you know with these off days set up, they have an off day today, Thursday, then off day Monday. Uh, they got a couple, a few off days here in the next couple of weeks that that would allow them to sort of have their five guys go and, and push for this for this division now that they're a game and a half back as of Thursday. And you know, the Dodgers did make the, the the biggest headline trade at the end of July, uh, acquiring Trey Turner and Max Scherzer, both of who have been quite wonderful for them. Um, how do they line up? For are, are they really going to go in the playoffs with Clayton Kershaw as their fourth starter at this point? Yeah, that's that's one of the big questions heading into this. Will uh, will he be their fourth guy? How will they use him? Um, he looked decent. Um, that Monday against Arizona, I think he went, mm-hmm. he went four and a third, uh, five strikeouts. His, his average velo on the, on the four scene was for 89, like 0.2 miles per hour or something. Um, he looked okay. He looked, he looked good enough that, that night. Uh, but it's a matter of building up his arm strength, his stamina, the next, you know, three star. I think he has three more starts left, possibly. Um, but Julio Rios is, hey man, it's, it's hard not to have that guy pitch game three. Um, right. there's a game three in the DS, right? Or game two at this point, they have to play the wild card game. Um, he's a guy that's, you know, he has 18 wins. I know wins are, are with thrown out the window, but his ERA is under three. He's pitching really well this season. His first sort of full season on the kind of being let loose and he's living up to his, you know, the potential that we heard about so often. Remember like five, six, seven years ago, we kept talking about this kid. Um, 
But yeah, Clayton Kershaw as of right now is their number four starter. Uh, but I do wonder if, if push comes to shove in October, whether he'll be used as the fourth guy or, or maybe they slide him up the, to the three spot and maybe use Cooley out of the bullpen, and, you, know, you know, like they have in the last couple of years. Do you think Roberts is capable of using Kershaw in a limited fashion? We One of the storylines, you know, the Kershaw storyline is actually a Roberts storyline in the postseason where Roberts just tries to get more out of him. Does the fact that Kershaw has had these injuries issues this year and isn't quite you know built up to the level of a bubble one, might that actually help Roberts treat Kershaw as an 18 batter guy and then go to Gonsolin or whoever the next guy is going to be as opposed to treating him as his number one? Yeah, I think we saw it last year. Um, if you remember in the, the World Series, they, he wasn't letting him go deep into the game. Um, we saw it last year. I think we're going to see it again this year. You know, I think Kurt Clayton is... I think Clayton's recognizing his, his, he's recognized his spot on the team. He's talked a lot about just being grateful for the opportunity to be here, just wanting to help out the team. It's very, you know, it's different than a few years ago when he was the number one guy and um, he wanted to go deep into games. I think he understands his role. He understands where he is in his career. Um, he's just 33 years old, but he's not the guy he was, you know, five, six, seven years ago. Um, so I think he understands that. Now, whether he'll be willing to you know, eventually be a straight-up reliever in October. I don't know about that because, again, it's going to be interesting to see if he's going to be the number three guy or the number four guy. Uh, but as for, like, going in deep into games, he's definitely going to be an 18-out guy, maybe fewer outs, um, you know, with Tony Gonsolin, you know, kind of there as well if they need to get some some bulk um, after, you know, a Kershaw start. So um, I definitely don't see him going deep into the games. This is not playing Kershaw's rotation anymore. They have three guys – top in this who are three of the best starters in baseball. And I think Clayton Kershaw recognizes that. You know, one of the quieter in-season acquisitions they made was picking up Albert Pujols, um, who certainly seemed to be dunner than done. And he's been, he hasn't been a superstar. He's been a usable piece for them. Still, you know, bashing around lefties, got 12 home runs and 188 plate appearances. Uh, Have you been surprised about how useful this guy's been? Uh, It's interesting because, if you looked at his numbers against lefties, you know, a small sample size with the, Anah- with the, with the Angels, um, he was good against lefties. The problem was it seemed like he didn't want to be sort of a role guy uh, with the Angels. And that's sort of changed here. I know he doesn't, he's not thrilled with not playing as, as sparingly as he's playing right now, um, but he's thriving in the role. Uh, he's hitting lefties. He's not, they're not using him against righties much at all. Uh, so I, I think it's the perfect role for him. He's obviously defensively, he's very limited now. He, he can't run. Um, nowadays i mean the guy's 41 years old um but he's also just been a really good uh, for what i can tell from what everybody's telling me a really good clubhouse presence mm-hmm. guys like him on the team um they, they they appreciate you know his his career where he's his standing uh you know in baseball history they appreciate the work he puts in at his age and you know they got they're, they're using his bat they're giving him hugs they call him theo it's like you know it's a whole love fest right now with albert Pujols, which is something i just didn't envision you know in may when they when they signed him and, and in some ways, like their offensive MVP and, and on a team loaded with superstars and, and, you know, the deepest lineup in baseball, you know, the guy leading the team in, in slugging and, and OPS and, and home runs is Max Muncy. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's crazy to think that just a few years ago, no one knew who this guy was. And now he's such a kind of a perennial factor. He's, every year he's, he's putting up numbers nowadays. And, um, you know, he, he doesn't. In a very, you know, old school, the old school guys don't love, you know, he's in like 250, whatever. He's not, he's not like the, the old school, like slugger, but you know, he's, 
he gets on base quite a bit. There was one stretch here, man, during the season. I forget the exact numbers, but he was like two for 30 or two for 40 or whatever it was. But he had like 20 walks during that stretch. It was like ridiculous like stat line. Uh, he was getting on base. Um, you know, there there are times where he, he goes through those stretches. Recently, he went through a stretch here where he, you know, he was having a rough time. You know, a lot, a lot of guys, what they end up doing is you're throwing junk low on him, you know, down in the zone and, and he chases a bit. He's a guy who needs to wait, you know, for a fastball, fastball up, as most of these guys do. Um, but when he does that, he's as dangerous as any slugger in baseball. And, you know, the fact that this guy is, you know, again, putting up a, what's a 921 OPS. I'm looking at his numbers right now. I mean, last year was a pretty off year for him, but it was kind of just a strange year. But it seems like every year now, three of the last four years, he's he's been one of the best, uh, you know, sluggers in baseball. Speaking of uh, converted uh, or found found property, um, you've had a front row seat for my favorite, one of my favorite stories this year, the return of Kenley Jansen. Um, what's that been like, and what have you seen? Do you and do you think he'll continue this through the playoffs? Yeah, so the biggest thing with Kenley Jansen is um, how they use him, when they use him, how often they use him. Um, he's a guy that it's obvious when he throws, you know, back to back nights. Chances are, like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying every time, but you know, chances are he won't have the same stuff as the night before. Um, you know, Dave Roberts and let's be honest, the front office, Andrew Friedman, um, they've been very careful with how they use Kenley Jansen. Um, they've you know, very rarely have used him three nights in a row. They actually did that pretty recently, and he actually did, you know, pretty well. Uh, but he's a guy who, you know, he might show up, you know, in the ninth inning throwing 89, and by the end of it throwing 95, and not really knowing where it's going. Or he might just show up in a straight 94, 95 from the jump, and it's a 1-2-3 inning. Um, it's kind of it's kind of weird in that aspect. He's a guy, the Dodgers say it's all about mechanics, syncing up his mechanics and all that stuff. He's a big guy. And let's remember, you know, He's been doing this for a while, but he was not a pitcher till you know pretty recently. This is a guy who's you know. Yeah, um, I saw him he, in the minor leagues when he was catching. Yeah, so th- this is all still pretty new. I I know he's been doing this for what like thirteen years at this point, but hey, this is still a guy who was a catcher. Um, and I think you know pitching. I think over the last couple of years, the one thing that's really uh, it's been interesting to see is before he was cutter, cutter, cutter. He was throwing cutters down your throat. Now he's you know incorporated a slider. Now it's he, he has even like a you know kind of a a two-seamer that he's throwing uh, to guys. Um, he's learned how to pitch a little more in the last couple of years um, since he sort of lost his velo. And his velo's picked up this year. So he, he's combining those sort of factors, and it's he's becoming a, you know, he's not the guy from 17, but he's still, he's, he's, a, he's a very guy, good guy out of the bullpen. And I think in October, what we'll see is, you know, Dave Roberts, I think, will be, you know, reluctant to use him on back-to-back nights, um, on back-to-back-to-back nights if it comes to that. Um, you know, you got a guy like Blake Trinan who can come in and fill in and, and who might be the nastiest reliever in baseball right now, at least from my eyes, it's the guy that I see every day. Uh, so, you know, the way they use Kenley is interesting, and I think just over the last couple of years, the biggest thing is he's learned how to pitch a little more. You, you talked about how they're going to use Kenley Jansen in October. How do you think the team's going to use Cody Bellinger in October? Is, is he, you know, does he have any way to kind of save his spot in the lineups over the next two weeks? Or, or you know, what, what, or are they just going to roll, roll with it and hope he gets hot? Yeah, it depends on it depends on a few things. Number one, it depends on AJ Pollock's health. He's on the injured list as of right now with a grade two right hamstring strain. Um, they do expect him to be back uh, within you know the next couple of weeks before the end of the regular season. So if he comes back healthy, he's a guy they use in left field. Um, you know, against lefties, um, probably against righties as well. I mean, his numbers he's been really good the second half of the season. Um, he got injured up in San Francisco on a sort of an awkward slide. Uh, so if he comes back, then you got Chris Taylor. Now Chris Taylor's had a kind of been banged up with a neck injury. 
Um, he's been scuffling really bad, pretty bad this second half of the season. But if he comes back and he's healthy, you got to think Chris Taylor at least plays against, is playing center field against lefties and Cody mm-hmm. Bellinger's, you know, on the bench against lefties. Now against righties, that might be a different story because last week or so, Cody Bellinger's made a slight adjustment to his swing, to his stance, um, you know, starting a little more upright, his bat's a little lower, um, you know, he's not loading up as much. Because uh, the big thing for him it was he was late on a lot of fastballs. And, yeah, he just and can't it, hit velocity yeah, this year at all. He can't, yeah, so he's late on fastballs. There was one point where he was cheating so much that, he, you know, against San Francisco, he swung at a curveball. that was like five feet in front of home play because he was cheating so much. Um, you know, the, that's the biggest thing. I think his adjustments helped him with that a little bit. And obviously his shoulder, um, I think that's sort of been a problem. The effects of having that major offseason shoulder surgery has been um, has been apparent. But I think what happens is if Chris Taylor and A.J. Pollock are healthy, Cody Bellinger does not play against lefties. Um, now, I th- I think if he continues doing pretty well these next couple of weeks, I think against righties, we can see him in a lineup in center field because his defense is elite, elite, elite um, out there. Um, and the Dodgers really value that um, out there. Yeah, the gloves last year, if you look at the defensive performance of Bellinger and Betts, outfield defense was a big reason they finally broke through and won the World Series last year. For sure. I mean, I mean, Betts is another, that's another story, right? He's been, he was injured most of the season. And finally now we're sort of seeing it, um, a healthy uh, Mookie Betts after that. So the right hip injury was bothering him quite a bit. So we might, we might see the best from those two guys in the next few weeks, you know, going into October, which is, you know, a big deal for the Dodgers. I know that everyone talks about how loaded they are, but last year, really last year, they, they, they got going when Mookie Betts got going and Corey Seager. And now you had a guy like Trey Turner. It's, it's, it's a loaded, it's a deep lineup if, if everything's going right. Um, you you talked earlier about kind of the, the where the fans are vibe wise. Uh, like what's the the vibe wise as far as results for the season? You know, we we had Lindsay Adler on a few episodes ago talking about kind of what Yankees vibes are. Where it's basically if they don't win the World Series, the season's a failure. And is that where Dodgers fans are at this point? Yeah, I would say so. Um, we have to remember this off season is a big off season for the Dodgers. Uh, Clayton Kershaw is a free agent. Kenley Jansen is a free agent. Corey Seager is a free agent. Chris Taylor. Um, a bunch of guys, Max Scherzer, <laughs> you know, that, a bunch of guys this offseason are, are free agents. And it's really, we saw a few guys from uh, this past offseason from that, you know, the first few years of this run with Kike Hernandez and Jock Peterson and Pedro Baez, guys leave. And now we're going to see the next group leave. And, you know, I'm not saying the window, the window is not going to close on the Dodgers. They will contend for a championship next year somehow, some way. Um, but with this cast of characters, yeah, it's going to look very different next year. So I, I think there is a sense of, hey, like, you know, even, even with the team, I think Clayton Kershaw, he, he's repeated it multiple times. Hey, like, I want to come back for this because I want to help this team win because you don't know how many, how often you'll, you'll get these opportunities. Um, and I think that also goes, you know, to the fan, the fan base. Well, the fan base, they always want to win the World Series, right? They always think their team should win the World Series. This is the highest, you know, it's the most expensive payroll in baseball. They have a bunch of stars. They have right now, Best pitcher in baseball, maybe Max Scherzer, um, who they just traded for. Trey Turner, low key, another MVP candidate. Um, this team's loaded. I think fans expect the World Series, and I think the players do as well. And they, they, I do think it's a failure for the organization if they don't win a World Series this year, just given you know the fact that the you know this this roster is loaded and a bunch of guys might not be around next year. Uh, it would be, I would be remiss not to talk about, uh, you know, one thing here and you, you talked about them having a five man rotation and obviously one person, uh, not in that rotation for good reason is Trevor Bauer. Uh, my first question is kind of more of a, almost like a media question. You as a member of the media, you know, with 
the COVID restrictions to the media and and not being in the clubhouse, do you think the the Dodgers in a strange way benefited from that in the sense that when the Bauer story was breaking and when it was still going on, the access to the players to talk to them about it wasn't what it would normally be? Uh, yes, 100%. Um, it's been frustrating. I think, you know, I'm not the only reporter you guys have probably have on it. I told you that this has been a very sort of, the access has been frustrating. Um and not really having a pulse of the clubhouse. And I'm not saying I'm going to go in there and uncover everything. You know, I'm not, you know, Woodward or anything. But, you know, you go in there and you kind of have a sense of what's going on. And guys talk to you and they feel more familiar, like more comfortable talking to you in that setting, you know, away from people. And now that it's all the on, on field stuff, people can see you and you know, all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, I do think um, they benefited. Now, the Dodgers, they do a good job of making sure these guys don't say much usually. But, yeah, I think at the end of the day, even if it's just getting the pulse, the temperature of the room, um, talking to guys, small talk, I think they definitely benefited from it. And, you know, it, with that, um, and then with Max Scherzer, the trade of Max Scherzer, they've been able to sort of leave that behind them. I mean, not leave that behind them, but sort of like uh, draw the attention away from it. Um you know, we, we've tried to do reporting here, at, you know, at the LA Times. We wrote a story about, how, you know, guys on the team don't want him back. Some guys, and mm-hmm. I've heard that from multiple people, especially the veterans in that clubhouse do not want him back. But have they, have they come on the record about that, or is it just what you know? No, they they, they don't go on the record about it. You know, we have asked, you know, guys about it. They don't want to go on the record. And if the managers don't want to talk about it pretty much. Uh, we've asked them multiple times. Uh, I think he was asked about it last week again. He's like, we're not thinking about it. Um, and that's the stance that the Dodgers have decided to take. Now, whether you – I don't – necessarily agree with it but uh that's not my you know that's not that's not for me to decide right so that's how they've wanted to do it and they've pretty much just not wanted to touch that subject and and obviously the the, the administrative leave just kept getting extended and extended and extended um and it finally recently was extended through the end of the year I mean, was that an additional relief where that doesn't have to be kind of hanging over their head every every time the extension comes up? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I, I think they all assumed that it, it was just going to happen eventually. I mean, I, I don't think I know that they assumed that it was going to happen like that. Um, so it was just a matter of, you know, it was a formality every week, right? Now it's just like a right. – now it's just more like the formality. We don't have to deal with the formality anymore. Now he's not going to pitch. And the next step is figuring out, you know, what the, what the criminal investigation, what that leads to, and then from there what Major League Baseball does because I – you know, I think Major League Baseball—he's not gonna—he's gonna suspend it at some point for for some amount of time. Now, there are reports as much as two years. I don't know, a year. I don't know, half the season. I have no idea. But from there, then the next step is: do the Dodgers try to get out of his contract, and how does that look like? Um, so, you know, there are a couple steps here. We we don't have the answers to to, to some questions. There are some key questions, but um, I I don't think Trevor Bauer would pitch for the Dodgers again. That was my follow-up question. Yeah, if yeah. you're a gambling man, do you think Trevor Bauer throws another pitch for the no, Dodgers? No, I don't. I mean, he has a year left in his deal, right? So if he doesn't pitch half the season next year or a whole season uh, next year or whatever amount of time, I think the Dodgers will try to get out of that contract eventually or just release him out, right? Now, that's a big kind of pillow swaddle when it comes to your, your payroll. They have the mo- they have the money, Jorge. Yeah, yeah, I know. But they, they, <laughs> here, here's the thing, though: like they have the money, and they still act like they don't have the money. That's the issue. So they have the money. Um, what do you, What do you mean by that? That they act like they still don't have the money? Because if you wanted to get out of this contract, you would already you already done. It. You could have done it yesterday. Yeah, you could have done it yesterday. But the reason why they don't is because they don't want to swallow all that money. That's the that's the only sort of that's the biggest reason, in my opinion, why they haven't done it. But so, if he's not going to pitch again for the Dodgers for a variety of reasons, why, why, why not do that? What's what's the thinking there? Like, why would you not if just release him if he's not going to pitch for you again? 
because if the Major League Baseball suspends him, it's gonna he's gonna be he's not gonna be paid. So Major League Baseball comes and they're like, you know what, the guy's right. spent it for a year. They don't have to pay him for a year. And then he has one year left on his deal at seventeen million dollars, and now they can just swallow that, or they can try to you know fight it and kind of void the contract, or he can just swallow seventeen mil. You know, it's better than swallowing fifty. It's also a big chunk off the the luxury tax threshold. I mean, it would be enough yes. to push them below the threshold next year. They have a lot of other money coming off too. So yes. I think it's I think it's in the Dodgers' interest, and I know the Dodgers' interests aren't really going to be front and center here. But if I'm the Dodgers, I wait to see if he's suspended to get out from yes. under that forty million. Exactly. I understand that completely. Exactly, right. exactly. That, that's why you wait, um, see if he's going to get suspended here, and for how long. And from there, you make your next decision. Um, you know, getting under the threshold, as you mentioned, is you know unloading that for next season. Uh, if, they, if they know this offseason that he's not going to pitch next season for whatever amount of time, that will help in terms of retaining possibly Max Scherzer and or Clayton Kershaw and or Chris Taylor. I'm not going to say Corey Seager because he's not coming back. And whoever, you know, whoever else, you know, so. Wait, I, I want to get into this. Corey Seager's not coming back? I don't think so. That's my guess. Why, I mean, why, what makes you think that? Because I, it, it's, it's been, it's been a, a general thought for much of the season that when you talk about all the big name free agent shortstops that Corey Seager's just going back to Los Angeles. What's what makes you think the opposite? They just traded for his replacement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's you know, Trey Turner's not playing second base next year for the Dodgers playing shortstop. So, um, yeah, that's that. I mean, I I I was saying it before the trade happened. I don't think like, uh, I don't think Corey Seager's coming back, and that sort of that just cemented it in my eyes. Um, he's not. That was at the very least insurance. And what I think it actually is, it's Trey Turner is his, his replacement. And, you know, you talk about Scherzer. Scherzer's been nothing short of remarkable in his time with the Dodgers. And eight starts, it's 51 innings, five walks, 72 strikeouts. Um, do you think they'll make a run at keeping him? Yes, uh, I do. And, and like that's that's sort of the, the where the Bauer stuff comes in play. Like how much money you know, will they be willing to spend? Like how much money will it be under the tax? Like all that stuff. And then the lockout. <laughs> I mean, right. it's coming. The lockout is coming. I know people yes. are trying to say it's not. The lockout is coming. So we don't know what the situation is going to be with the tax line next year. Even when the season is going to start, when free agency is going to even begin. It's, there are a lot of questions. But, yeah, I do think the Dodgers love Max Scherzer. Uh, they almost signed him seven years ago um, before they, you know, the national swooped in and got him. Um, they love his accountability. They love his preparation. They love his... Just how competitive he is. They're big fans of Max Scherzer. Um, and, I mean, shoot, who wouldn't be, right? The guy's right now the best, as of the last you know couple of months, the best pitcher in baseball is 37 years old. Uh, so, yeah, I do expect him to be in play. Now, there'd be a lot of suitors, you know? Um, there's, there's a team up north that might that might want a shot at him. Yeah. So, we'll see. I don't, th- I don't think the A's are really going to be a factor here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if the Mariners really the Mariners. <laughs> sign him. I want to ask a meta question, if you don't mind. You know, this conversation has kind of been a, a your season writ large, where you get to cover Mookie Betts and Max Scherzer and Clayton Kershaw, these Hall of Fame or MVP caliber players for a team that's going to win 100 games. It's coming off a World Series championship. And you've also had to cover really the worst story in baseball this year. And I kind of wonder how you shift gears on a daily basis you know, between those two things, particularly in July when it was really a daily basis thing and how, how you kind of manage those two, uh, those two uh, channels. Uh, yeah, shit, man. Um, so basically, the day the Dodgers went to the White House, it was the craziest sort of like... Oh, God, yeah. It was... So I was in D.C. I flew to D.C. that Wednesday. I, had a, I was writing a story. All this stuff was breaking, like not breaking, the TMZ broke it on Tuesday night in Los Angeles. You know, the Trevor Bauer situation. Wednesday, 
I was flying and I was writing stuff and like looking through like the report and all that stuff. Thursday, uh, they go to the White House. So you're thinking like you go from Bauer to the White House. Um, and then I'm leaving the White House and I hear that he's going to that he's going to go on leave. Um, it, it, it was, uh, I don't know, man. It was just kind of like, I don't know. It was crazy. It was crazy going from one thing to the other thing. But yeah, um, the good thing about our, my place here, man, is, uh, we have multiple people here who are helping. It's not just me. Uh, we have guys that do, who are doing the hearing, you know, Bill Shake has been all over a lot of this stuff when it comes to, you know, the administrative leave. We had a, Mike Giovanna who's been on stuff. Um, so we, we're doing a good job sort of divvying it up. But yeah, it's, it's weird. Um, dealing with that real life it's a real life thing right what we do mostly every day is kind of this bs you know guys hitting and throwing and all that stuff but this is real life um so it's been strange it's been a it's kind of i don't know it's been weird um trying to cover a team and also doing sort of writing about that situation and it's you know it's really sad it's unfortunate i know a lot of people are affected you know just even reading stuff reading those details and sure um, anybody is, I mean, I, I read the report, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's crazy. Uh, it's terrifying. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's terrifying. It's horrifying. And, um, but like, I mean, we have good people here, man, who, who have really helped me, um, uh, not helped me. We, we're here to serve our readers the best way we can. And we have a good team here doing it. And, you know, I'm going to Cincinnati tonight to cover baseball and, um, you know, kind of be on that. That's sort of my mindset. But then, Hey, if anything with Bauer pops up, we, or we hear anything we're we're on that too. So it's, it is a little strange, but um, this team is, I'll say this, this team is never, never boring. I'll tell you that much. There's always something going on. I was going to ask, you mentioned the team and your editor is uh, Chris Stone. I want to know, you know, what do you really think of Chris Stone? Come on, you safe space. <laughs> Be honest here. Tell me what you really think of that. Hey, man, he's good. Man. good I actually had lunch with him uh, yesterday. Oh, man, really? So, no dirt? Yeah, no, no dirt, man. It was, it's all been great. Um, really supportive. Guys are you know, but this is the baseball season's a grind being on a beat and they've been really, you know, good and great uh, with me. So, um, no, it's, it's, it's all been good, man. All right. Well, I was hoping for some dirt. He was, <laughs> he was my editor at SI for a while. So I yeah, just, yeah, no, I, yeah, I'll no. tell you some stories. <laughs> Sorry, so, KG, I, go ahead. No, as you said, you're, you're heading to Cincinnati. The, the, the remaining schedule for the Dodgers is kind of light. You know, they have a, a long road trip coming up here, but it's not really a scary one. They have three with the, the slumping reds and they go to Colorado and Arizona. Um, and they finish at home with three with the Padres and then they, and then three with Milwaukee who will likely be playing out the string and getting ready for the playoffs and won't be the same Brewers team. Uh, the schedule at least is kind of on their side. Yeah. Um, it is, you, you would think, um, but this team also lost two or three to the Rockies like a couple weeks ago. So you, you never right. quite know, but this, I mean, but yeah, it's on their side. I, a game and a half out. It could be a game after tonight. Uh, the Dodgers are off. The Giants are playing. It could be two games. Um, it's gonna, it's gonna be. It's kind of weird. It's, uh, it's one of those old school sort of races, right? The two best teams vying for, for something. Like back in the day, it was the pennant. Now I guess it's just the division. But um, yeah, the schedule's on the Dodgers' side. They have their pitching's lined up, ready to go. Uh, you know, guys are healthy or getting healthy. I mean, Pollock's out a little for now, but. You know, they have Mookie and they have Justin Turner and Corey Seager and Trey Turner. I mean, on paper, they should have won the division, right? But the Giants are, man, they're 9-1 in the last 10. The Dodgers, the Dodgers are 8-2. Eight and, eight and uh, the Dodgers can't, they, they, can't, uh, they can't seem to break through because the Giants are playing so well. well. Jorge, I want to thank you for joining us. If you want to read Jorge's stuff, you head over to the LA Times. If you want to follow Jorge on Twitter, you go to at 
Jorge Castillo. Is there anything else I need to plug, Jorge? No, man, that's it. Uh, there's not really much for, much to my for me. It's <laughs> <laughs> the only writer that's in the world. That's all I got. Pod- yeah, that's all I got, guys. I got nothing. <laughs> no podcast, no Substack, no, no, no OnlyFans, sub nothing really. I, no, no OnlyFans. I mean, OnlyFans is, is like closing down in October, anyways, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> No OnlyFans, nothing. Big piece of your income going away there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Ori. Uh, safe travels to Cincinnati and have some of the chili. It's better than everybody tells you. I will, man. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Take care.
Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks to Jorge Castillo, Los Angeles Times, for joining us to talk about the ins and outs of the 2021 Los Angeles Dodgers. Our musical guest this week is Circus Trees. Um, first of all, thanks to Riley Breckenridge, who, if you do not know, is the drummer for Thrice, who will likely be a listener of the week soon to talk about being in a touring band in the times of a pandemic, uh, hooked me up with this band. Uh, you've already heard two cuts from them, and now I'm going to tell you something that is going to shock you which is circus trees are made up of three sisters from Massachusetts, Fanola, Edmi, and Juliana, who are 19, 17, and 15. Children should not be able to make this music this good with this kind of mature of songwriting. Um, As I said, they're from Marble, Massachusetts. They started in 2018. Um, It's kind of a post-rock shoegaze sound. Your favorite thing, Joe. Um... You're listening to their debut full-length full length record, Delusions. Uh, Jay Mouse recorded this thing. Um, I can't. I it, This blew me away. Like Riley's like, you got to hear this band. They sent it to me. I said, and he sent it to me. And I started listening to it. And he goes, they're teenage girl. It was just unbelievable. And, and, you know, a lot of people, especially people my age, and, you know, I'm in my 50s, complain about the youth of America. I adore the youth of America because they create things like this and they have it worse than any other generation of youth of America. And you need to appreciate what they're going through. So go youth of America, go circus trees, circus trees.bandcamp.com. If you want to learn more, they are fucking awesome. I don't like you, you alluded there. It's not necessarily where I would go to from a listening experience, but as the father of an 11 year old girl, who's very into singing and dancing, I want to put this in front of her. And even if she doesn't like the music say, Hey, look, these kids aren't that much older than you are. Yeah. And they're doing this. This is what you can you can do. You can do anything. They got a rock band and a record contract and Incredible. a booking agent. But it just and you think about the work that they do. I mean, I see the, the work that Marina does, you know, for for her shows and her performances, and I just have so much respect for these kids who are just like, yeah, let's 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 start a band. You know, let's let's see. Yeah, we got the old barn. Let's put on a play. Um, so no, I'm incredibly impressed, and uh, I, I wish them all the success in the world. Go circus trees. Um, it's time for our emails. Let's want to talk about sumo first, Joe. Sumo tournaments is going on right now. It started last weekend. I, I can spell sumo. Terano Fuji's first tournament as a Yokozuna. Four I love, so far. I love that you, you get so geeked out about this. I love it. <laughs> I know nothing about it, but other people getting geeked out about stuff absolutely gets me going. <laughs> My favorite thing about sumo, and I always try to explain this to people, and always kind of shocking, is so um, you hold titles in sumo, right? You get ranked, and if you get ranked higher, you get a better title, right? And the top title is Yokozuna. There's only been like 70-something Yokozunas in the history of sumo. And the thing that makes sumo so incredibly unique is so, right now, Terano Fuji and Hakuho are the only Yokozunas, but um, the rankings are redone after every tournament. Tournaments are every two months. And if you if you reach that top, that pinnacle title, uh, the Yokozuna title, which makes you a superstar, right? If you cannot no longer perform at a Yokozuna level, you do not get demoted. You are expected to retire. So the baseball equivalent would be like if Mike Trout suddenly hit 280 with 25 and was still one of the best players of baseball, he just wasn't that MVP level Yokozuna baseball player, he would be asked by Commissioner Manfred to retire. That's incredible. In his respect for the game. So you reach this level, it makes you... It basically makes you a Hall of Famer. You're famous forever. You are, you are, and they're numbered. Like you are the 63rd Yokozuna. Um, but the second you can't do it, you can't perform at that level anymore, you're done. You're out of the, we talked about out of the pools. Game. We talked about pools earlier yeah. on the podcast. Right, like, like five or six years ago, our pools would have been asked to to, 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 to retire. Is this how we solve the title bump problem in baseball? We make guys wrestle for them? <laughs> at least do sumo, yeah. 
Um, it's time for emails. You can email the show. It's chinmusic at fangraphs.com. I read every email. Contrary to popular belief, I do not have an intern. I read all of the emails. Before we start the emails, I do want to talk about uh, Ian and Rob. Ian is a frequent emailer to the podcast, and Rob is his email editor. It is a shocking confluence of talents where Ian sends emails, and before he does them, he sends them to Rob, who edits the emails that get sent to me. This weekend, Ian is getting married on September 17th, and so I am here to congratulate Ian on his marriage on September 17th. Good luck, Ian. You got a 50-50 shot. That's, yeah. <laughs> the, the, this, pod, this podcast being an, being an example of that. I'm, I'm one for three. I'm one for oh, two. I'm I one for two. I think combined we're one for three. One for, I actually didn't know you'd been married before Margaret. Yes, I was married for three and a half years to someone who... I, that was before we... I knew that. Yes. Yeah. And I'm one and, for one, so... Yeah. So combined we're hitting 333, which puts you on all-star team, Rob. Don't, but it, so don't but worry about it. But it means that Ian, you're... you're, you're his you're going to bring it back to, up, right? Right. Yeah. He has to get to 500, so his has We're to work out. Right. Ian, you're regressing to the mean. Good luck. Have a good day. If I can give you one piece of advice, because I, I, I know Rob's going to the wedding, so you're actually having a wedding with people and stuff. I, I understand it's outside, socially distanced. This is, the, the, this is my one piece of advice to people who, who are in weddings that, that have people at them and stuff. Um, it is going to be a whirlwind, and it's going to be crazy. And at some point, and, and hopefully multiple points during your wedding, at some point, get away from everybody, step back, and just look around, or you're not going to remember everything. I mostly but, remember being hungry. <laughs> yeah, I, my first wedding, the, the, the wedding itself was fantastic. It all went downhill from there, but the wedding itself was clearly the highlight. Of, of we we were marriage. just talking to so many people, we never stopped to eat. Yeah. I, uh... <laughs> I know a guy who, like, the, 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 the thing that they cared almost the most about was the cake. <laughs> and 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 they they spent all this time they found the right cake and it was this beautiful wonderful cake and and you know they went to cut the cake and they need to go talk to someone and go talk to someone else and he had a piece of cake on his chair uh, you know at his table and he had to go talk to someone else and then when he got back his cake was gone and there was no more oh. cake and he, and he didn't get a single piece of the cake brutal <laughs> our first email comes from patrick patrick says i'm a fan of the rangers who are rebuilding yes they are while I love every prospect and young player to hit their most optimistic projections, that's unrealistic. I find myself vacillating between this guy is a bust and he'll be a regular for years to come. But I really don't know what I'm talking about. Do you have any pointers on how to have a more realistic and sane approach to viewing players and teams as they develop and rebuild? I Maybe I do. and I, you know, Teams are often wrong themselves about this guy is a bust or he'll be a regular for years to come, obviously. Um, but you got to look at the team now. And you have to say to yourself, and there's not a whole lot of yes answers on that Rangers roster right now. And you got to get away from like, is this guy on the team next year too? Is this guy on a roster of a team that completes for a playoff spot? And is this guy going to be available to my team in terms of his service time and that kind of stuff to this roster when it's going to be good enough to complete for a playoff spot? And that's, that's when you know where your holes are. Um, you also have to know like when you're taking the next step. So you start off in these rebuilds and maybe hopefully these rebuilds go away after the next CBA because we won't have a rule set that encourages them necessarily. Um, and I say it as a team that obviously tanked and, and you know, I, I, my argument for that is always don't hate the player, hate the game. Like the rules need to change to not encourage this kind of activity, but it, it's happening right now. And you kind of start at where you suck and you're, you know, the Orioles or whoever. And then you get to the point where, you know what? We're, we're kind of all right. Like we can now athlete you on the right day. If you're coming to play us at home, you actually have to take a serious. It's kind of where the Tigers are right now. 
Um, and then the next step is like, like if things break right and some things go well for us, we might get into a wild card race. We might play games in September that matter. Uh, and then the next step is, is yeah, we're, we're in this shit. Um, and so you kind of have to recognize which players can get you to each of those next steps, but more importantly, so you don't get caught in these never ending cycles, like maybe the Rockies and pirates have been in you have to kind of know when to, and be willing to do what you need to do to get to that next step. But, but, you know, for the players, it's very much, that's the question. Like, is this player a placeholder or is this player part of our roster when we're trying to take the next step in that process? I was 19 years old. So the 1990 Yankee season, it was my first year at SC. I'd come home for the summer. And we were absolutely over the moon for Kevin Moss, mm. Oscar Zokar. I forget, there was a pitcher in that mix as well. And we were talking about Sam Militello coming up for the minors in a sure. couple of years. And I think it, we have better information now than we did then, obviously. But a lot of it is recognizing the difference between you know, a player who's developing his skills and getting better and young enough to help you and a player is just having the best two months of his life. Right. Um, eventually, and I talk about this in actually a lot of rebuilding scenarios, in two years, the Yankees now had Bernie Williams, and two years after that, it was Derek Jeter, Pettit, Posada. The real prospects came through and they won a bunch of championships. I think the Rangers are the 1990 Yankees right now, um, where the guys that they have are either too old or not good enough. It, it's made, made, they've had some fun moments this year. Jonah Heim had a couple of big walk-offs. Adolis Garcia has been a great story. But there aren't a whole lot of guys. There, there's certainly nobody on this roster right now who can be the best player on a championship team or a top core player on a championship team. Mm -hmm. There might be some supporting guys, um, but I think the real prospects for the Rangers are still you know, a year or two out. You look at you, yeah. Young will come up next year. Um, I, I like the trade for Spencer Howard. I think he'll be a piece. Um, God, you think he should be. So frustrating. Yeah, and uh, I think what we got to look at the Rangers. You know, the, the major league development of the la for the last five years hasn't really worked. Can right. your organization turn these guys into players? Like the prospect to player jump, some teams are very good at that, and some teams have been very bad. I want to make a point here too. You can also just be the Giants and hire a bunch of coaches and win a hundred games. So that's that's the other way to go about it. <laughs> and be incredibly smart with your roster and lineup construction. Mm -hmm. They are doing. I've said this before. They're doing stuff with their lineups that go well beyond platoons. That are kind of incredible. That other teams are trying to figure out and haven't quite gotten there. If you look at how they use Wade, Wade leads off, he hits fifth, they do all kinds yeah. of things. And it's not it's not strict platoons, lefty-righty in the outfield. They're doing a whole bunch of – it's really been a lot of fun to watch. And I think yeah. the fact that Gabe Kapler is going to win a Manager of the Year award before the Phillies go back to the playoffs, one of my favorite stories this year. Yeah, it's – it's you know, this point's been made elsewhere, but like it's so many managers screw up their first job mm -hmm. and, and are so much better second. And, and you know, Kapler's the latest version, but, you know, one that I had a personal relationship, A.J. Hinch was not a good manager yep. in Arizona, and he'd tell you that. Um, and Frank learned Hoda. a lot. And Frank, uh, Joe Torrey. Yep. You know, Torrey I mean, had a couple jobs. When he was hired, we hated it in New York. Oh, yeah. And it's just, it's, it's you got to learn from your failures in that position. Um, and so, yeah, we'll see with the Rangers. And, you know, hopefully they can turn Jack Leiter into a, important cog mm -hmm. in the rotation and um yeah it's i i understand your frustration it's it's hard to know but you have to like that that always was kind of my focus like which player on this roster is, is on the next step team as opposed to just holding down a position for now uh next email comes from thomas thomas says my question is in relation to an international draft from what all the people in the know keep saying this is something that will happen in the next few years that's for sure this the international draft is much more of a, a when than an if at this point um with the teams laid out in this terms laid out in this upcoming CBA, I ask, 
how would Major League Baseball be able to juice governments in the in areas covered by an international draft like Japan, the DR, and Mexico to go along with forcing teenagers to work for specific companies, being the MLB teams? While I get why the draft works in the United States, collective bargaining allows for many things so long as the union allows it, I fail to see how Major League Baseball could convince all of these countries to go along with it. Well, this is outside your expertise, unless you or your guests have legal training I don't know about. I don't even have a college credit to my name, Thomas. Uh, Y'all probably have better connections in baseball legal people than I do. Uh, It's complicated. Uh, Joe, I know you have some knowledge from other sports who do draft players from other countries. It's cute that he thinks that I would talk to other people and instead of just, you know, making up an answer on my own. That's adorable. (laughs) Uh... I will say it's just off the top so I can be on the record for this. Sports drafts are immoral wealth transfers and they should be eliminated. Having said that, the NBA has been doing this for 30 years. They draft Euros. There's, yeah. the, there's no juicing of governments. There's no anything like that. They just, we want you. There there were some issues early on when they started drafting amateurs. Uh, excuse me, started drafting internationals where the players simply weren't eligible. Uh, Manute Bowl was drafted and they avoided that. Uh, one of the, the really, Stiakovic, Sabonis, I think it was. He was drafted and he wasn't, and he had to get, go through the draft again. But there's no, governments have to agree. I don't think that you know, MLB is going to have to go to the government of the Dominican Republic and say, no, 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 you've got to get our approval to draft our citizens. No, that's, that's not going to happen. MLB is just going to put in a, a draft. And, you know, could you see, there were scenarios early on. Sabonis was playing for the Soviet Union at the time, which you know, he was in the 88 Olympics for the Soviet Union. You know, the Soviet Union still existed. Um, and when he eventually came over, like seven years after he was drafted, it was just Lithuania by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were no issues there. But no, in every year now, the, the draft is like a quarter euros, I want to say at this point. Um, and right. there's, just, there's, there's, no, there's nothing standing in the way. And I, that's the example I would use if I'm MLB to say, hey, look, we've been doing, you know, the NBA has been doing this for a while. I could see a situation. Yao Ming was drafted with the first pick in the draft, and I, I don't know what the negotiations were there. I think if we started drafting a lot of guys from a country that the United States doesn't have good relationships with, China probably being the best example. Yeah. I wonder if there wouldn't need to be a situation there that had to be managed. But that's country-specific more than draft-specific. Yeah, and if there is an international draft, it's not going to include Japan, who has their own rules for mm-hmm. their players and their teams, as well as and some and some rules that are unwritten as well uh, about players coming over, right over here. Um, same goes for Korea. Um, Cuba? Cuba is complicated. Um, I, Mexico is actually more complicated than people think, just because there's a very strange arrangement with the Mexican League as well, where those players actually associate with Mexican League teams at very early ages. Um, and you kind of have to buy them away from the Mexican League team who gets a portion of their bonus. Um, the Dominican will be no problem. The Dominican is, you know, a, a substantial portion of their economy revolves around baseball. I, I was going to say, jeopardize how, that. how much money uh, is MLB already putting into the Dominican economy? Right, a significant amount. It's, it plays a big part of their economy. And, um, you know, on a tangential note, like someone um, tweeted at me about Norhe Vera, who is a, a 21-year-old Cuban pitcher um, who is currently pitching in the Dominican Summer League, even though he's 21, and got a huge bonus. And he has something like 18 strikeouts per nine and is throwing 100 miles an hour. And someone said, like, why is he still in the Dominican Summer League? And the reason is, and and most Cubans and a lot of the Dominicans do as well, uh, they put in their contract that, that you're not going to bring them to the country during their first year because if they stay in the Dominican, they don't have to pay taxes on their bonus because baseball-related income in the Dominican Republic is not taxed. No kidding. And so, um, yeah, so, so, I mean, so the, when those guys get their, you know, Vera's Cuban, when they get their residency the Dominican, if you get them a $3 million bonus and they don't come here, that's $3 million of income earned in the Dominican Republic and it's tax-free. 
So a huge those are the DR would just go with it. Major League Baseball's already done a lot of work getting in front of this in the Dominican Republic. It used to it, it it's still the wild wild west there, but there are now these kind of trainer certifications slash trainer events that are put on by Major League Baseball. Like they've established a relationship with the trainers and tried to create some structure and loose rules around the around seeing players and things like that. And so they've already kind of tried to set up um, kind of just putting their their giant controlling hand in there um so they so so trainers are ready for what is going to certainly be an international draft this gonna be so, fascinating when it happens I'm, I'm it's going to be so weird yeah i'm also i'm already it's already a thing for me where like if you're a 16 year old kid in santa, santa domingo you can sign a contract but if you're an 18 year old kid in santa Ana, you have to wait until you're done with high school yeah that, that stuff's never really sat all that well with me if yeah. you're a tennis player at 15 you can basically go pro and we we have weird we have a lot of weird rules in this country, but in, in any case, I think having that, I think we're going to see how teams value these talents when they're on the same scale. Right, and and the other thing is like the international draft will likely be a short one. Um, I think it's designed just to kind of even the distrib- distribution of the the big players, if you will. You know, Kevin, and I'm so, sorry, I'm 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 doing two things at once here. You're saying it's going to be two separate drafts and not one draft where everybody's eligible. Oh yeah, it's going to be. There'll be an amateur draft and there'll be an international draft. Okay, I then ignore my last comment. And um, but the international draft will likely be somewhere around five to six rounds. Um, and so, 150, no, 160 players. That's roughly what they yeah. get now. Yeah, and so if if that's the case, like I I do wonder because it happens now. If like you'll see teams try to hide players. Hmm. Um, but they'll probably do like a capped bonus after that, so you, you know you'll have the five rounds, and you can sign whoever you want after that, but for no more than a hundred thousand dollars, like they like, like they do with the MLB, like they, right? Exactly. Um, and so yeah, it's going to be weird. Um, and then, but I, it's coming, and um, it could come as early as twenty twenty one. Drafts continue to be immoral. Carry on. Um, our next email comes from Jack. Jack says hello, Kevin, and esteemed esteemed guest. You're esteemed now, Joe. I'm esteemed sometimes. <laughs> As a Braves fan, I was curious what you'd expect out of Mike Soroka next season. Two blown Achilles is just brutal, but it wasn't arm or shoulder related, which might be a bright side. Do you think he can get back to where he was? I understand you aren't all doctors, but I'm still curious. And a more general question is, what is a front officer's relationship like with injuries? Are you just getting a report from the doctor and being hands-off waiting for the all-clear? Are you sometimes as deep as looking at x-rays, etc.? Thanks. My answer is I have no idea what to expect from Mike Soroka. I'm going to explain my answer by answering your second question. Um, a front office's relationship with injuries is an exceptionally close one. Um, front, uh, teams have their own medical staff. They have, uh, you know, obviously their own trainers. They also have uh, a, a slew of doctors who are, you know, well, when they're not, you know, private or public practice doctors also work directly for the team. Um, and are consulting with the team and, and informing the team about a player's injuries and, and looking at x-rays and, and, you know, doing everything. Uh, so, you know, from the second a player is injured, um, not only are they well taken care of, but like the, the, the front office themselves is exceptionally informed for ex- exactly what's going on. And, you know, when you hear about an injury in the news or even if, you know, in a, a, a presser before the game or whatever, you know, a team tells you something about an injury, they are telling you 10% of what they know. They know exactly when that guy might come back. They know exactly what the what the severity or not severity of the injury is. They know the whole story. And now so that, the, the, the Braves have a really good feel about Soroka, but no one else does. Now that's competitive reasons as opposed to any legal prescription, or is there a legal prescription kind of folded in there? 
Um, I don't know what the legal prescription is. I know there are there, you know, there are portions of HIPAA that apply, but there are also portions of HIPAA that don't apply because teams have the right to know about other players' injuries and things like that. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's it is a competitive thing to know, and and teams manage all you know. Players don't just disappear when they're hurt. Teams manage their rehabilitation and 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 you know try to get them healthy as soon as possible under their own umbrella as opposed to someone else's, um, or or opposed to just the player individually. And so, like the medical world is really really intense, and it, it's intense all the way up. And you know, to go back to the draft, you know, any player who wants to be a draft has to fill out a medical questionnaire with Major League Baseball's office. That medical questionnaire is shared with all thirty teams. Um, and teams have their own physicians and medical teams that go through those questionnaires and, and, and make opinions on their medicals. Um, when you make a trade, medical files are exchanged before the trade. And, um, and, and, you know, your medical guy or, or, or girl will, will look at those medical files and give you a thumbs up and at times a thumbs down. They don't make the trade. This guy's elbow is going to pop or his, his, his back injury is going to come back and it's very dangerous and you're taking a huge risk here. Um, so the, the teams have, uh, incredible access and incredible knowledge of, of all of their players' health status. Very, as far as himself, I, I think he's, you got to treat him as found money if, if he comes back next year and pitches well or pitches at all. It, it's not even so much that you can't come back from Achilles. We were watching, was, didn't Adam Wainwright blow, hit, blow his out six years ago? Yeah. And he's one of the best stories in baseball this year. But from a volume standpoint, Soka will have missed two years. He was never an overpowering guy. He was really a kind of a command guy. Um, you know, volume alone is going to limit what he can actually contribute next year, I think. Um, and you just look at the two blown Achilles, and I just, like, as someone who feels very strongly about pattern recognition when it comes to figuring out what's going to happen in baseball, like, here's what's happened before, here's what happens when this happens, and, and that's probably our center point for what might happen again. Um, this is kind of uncharted territory, and I think it just kind of puts it even more in the realm of possibility. I agree with you. Like, I don't think you can, I don't think anyone, the Braves are counting on him. And if they get something out of him, great. But I don't, I don't think they're walking into next season saying this guy's in our rotation by any stretch, which is what they did this year. One of the reasons I picked the Braves, because I thought Soroka was going to give them 25 starts. Really good. Right. Um, that's it for the email. If you want to send us an email, please do so. Chin music at fangraphs.com. Joe, it's time to catch up with you. First of all, you're in Las Vegas. I am. Um, Obviously, I know people heard there was a, a pandemic, kind of <laughs> limited activities. I, I didn't get a lot of coverage, but I haven't gone anywhere in you know, 18 months. Mm -hmm. I have a, I lived in L.A. for a long time, but I have a lot of friends uh, out in Los Angeles. So my buddy texts me maybe four weeks ago. And he's like, I've got an extra ticket to the Oregon State, USC or Oregon State game. I went to USC. I've been to a SC game in maybe 10, 12 years. Mm. So I was like, well, once I thought about it, I'm like, I don't really have a a ton keeping me in the city. I can work anywhere. Um, my daughter actually is relocated for educational reasons, so she's not even in the city anymore. So, yeah, I, once I decided to, to go to the game, it was like, well, let me just build a whole trip around it and see people I haven't seen in almost two years. So anytime I go west, yeah, I'm, I'm a threat to stop. I'm, I'm basically a favorite to stop off in Vegas for a couple of days. That's where I am now. Uh, see people here. It'll be a lot of fun. Watch football. 80,000 college football games on Sun on Saturday. Not so much the NFL. I could take a leave the NFL, but I love watching college football. Um, go to Orange County. See a good friend of mine out there. Be look, really my baby sister, basically. Um, go to an Angels game. Crossing my fingers, we catch Otani, although I think he might be shut down from pitching pretty soon here. Yeah, he's actually getting his next start skipped. Play some golf. See an SC game. Head up to uh, Fresno, hopefully. See uh, one of my best friends from college who I rarely get to see anymore. It's just, it's seeing a lot of people I haven't seen in years. And I think a lot of the experiences people had this summer with 
getting out in the world again. This is kind of my my rebirth, and I just I I just I, I'm seeing people I love, and I'm really excited about this next next couple of weeks. Any trepidation about going to a full stadium with people? I'm debating whether I'm going to mask on uh, at the two ball games. Um, and I mentioned off the air, there's a thing here in Vegas tonight with the Mexican league teams. I'm, I'm debating whether to go to that. I think in any crowd situation, I'm going to mask. Um, I am I'm vaccinated, um, but I it's one of those things where <laughs> this is going to sound really stupid, but mask didn't bother me that much. And no, me either. I, I haven't had a cold me. in 18 months either. Exactly. I'm kind of enjoying that part of it. So as somebody who you know, rode the subways for years, would always pick up whatever. And you know, I mean, Marina, when she was younger, she was picking up whatever. It's kind of been nice not having the sniffles for as long as I have. So yeah. I'm, I, I, the hardest thing is there's an expectation now that you won't wear a mask. And there's this whole cultural fight that I don't really want to get into. But um, I think in a crowded situation where now they, they say you have to be vaccinated to get into the game, to the, the USC game. You know, something that's a bunch of college students. I'm not going to take my chance. So I, I would expect that I'm going to mask up. If nothing else, during entrance and egress, um, and then in my seat, uh, I don't know. It might be a how I feel in the moment thing. I don't think my buddy's going to mask, so that might be that might be a little uh, social cue that I don't I don't do it. But um, I'm kind of comfortable. I'm comfortable masking in any situation where it might reasonably be expected to do so. You have to mask indoors here in Vegas. I learned. Yeah, you have to mask indoors uh, in Illinois again, too. Yeah, so, you know, I think the, the longer there are actually laws in place about it, the easier it is. But um, I'm comfortable being in, like, a restaurant unmasked now. Um, you know, are, there, that's, any, that's the, are there any, because it's California, is there, are there any rules about entering the stadium? No, you say USC, USC has a rule. Um, so USC, I actually just before, mercifully, they, they made this decision before I packed, because I don't know if I would have packed my vaccination card. But I have to show proof of vaccination. Okay, great. That's great. I don't think that's the case at the Anaheim game. Okay. I don't think that's it either. And I don't know. I know there were some mandates from the president last week, but I'm not really sure when those kick in or or if and all that kind of stuff. In fairness, there probably won't be a crowd as we would normally describe it at the the Angels game in the final week of the season. Who are they playing? Well, it is the Astros, but Mm. everybody gets a boo. It's kind of a do do I get Otani or not kind of might determine the size of the crowd. Trout's been shut down, so there's no reason to show up to. So to see him, so but no, it'll be in a ballpark, you know. I mean, I went to my first couple of games back this summer, and it felt great. That's what I was going to ask. Did you have you have you been to games? I went to a Phillies game uh, down in, uh, in in at the I was going to say vet, the vet city CBP. I got to see that wild midweek game with all the lead changers and three run homers. It was great. Um, and then I went not to a, a Phillies uh, game with lots of lead, <laughs> lead changes. I went to a Brooklyn Cyclones game a couple weeks ago. Uh, nice. Was, you know that that's a great little park. It, no, it's fantastic. A fantastic location. So yeah, I'm gonna get. To, I haven't actually been to one of the the, the major New York parks uh, yet this season, which is fine. I, Yankee Stadium, I just don't enjoy that much, which is the one Why? across the street I love. It's just soulless. Mm. Um, it's difficult to get in, like the whole crowd to get in. It, it, they just it, they did oh, not yeah. build it to let a whole bunch of people go through metal detectors or have to have their vaccination status checked. Right. Um, and it just, I it's it's like a facsimile of the really good HOK populous parks. Mm. Um, and city is fine, except I don't want to go see a Dodger game, and it's all the Dodger I can accurately. I'm still, I don't know how you build a ballpark and make it about another team. Um, <laughs> it's also a hike for me, for me from Yonkers to get to city. It's I got to change planes in, in Woodside, so right, right. Uh, but I, if, I mean, I'd rather go to a game there, but it is, it is quite the hike. So yeah, the two New York MLB parks. I just doesn't I mean Brooklyn's a hike too, but um, but yeah, Yankee Stadium is very close. It's just, eh, it's Yankee Stadium. I, which at least it hurts because literally. The, the, I grew up in the blue Yankee Stadium, Yankee Stadium 2. 
Right. I have all of my baseball memories are in this ballpark. So to feel this way about the new one, it's just always been weird. Hmm. And so, uh, and you were good. You're okay flying and everything like that. Yeah, I was. Um, I, you know, was now again masks on the plane. Of course. And yeah. my feeling is, you know, I, I believe in masks to use the really dumb term. And you know, if I'm wearing one, I feel pretty comfortable. Yeah, I mean, we we did some traveling last month, and where'd you um, guys go? Uh, the Bay Area. Nice. Um, to visit my wife's family and, and things like that, and it was just, I was fine flying. It like it was just kind of sucked because like we booked the trip right when it kind of felt like there was light at the end of the tunnel. And that changed. And that changed before the trip. And then all of a sudden, and it was just like you, like a week before, I was like, man, we should probably find our vaccination cards and take them with us. You know, and, and, and you know, maybe four days before all the Bay Area counties went to um, mass mandates indoors and things like that. And all of a sudden, just like, it just sucked to like, just also like the thought of, you know, going to Chinatown for a day and have, finding some fun food and rummaging through all the, the, the stores with weird stuff and finding, some, you know, Felt that was less appealing all of a sudden. You know what I mean? Do you think we're going to feel normal again? Anytime soon. I mean, literally anytime soon. Because I feel like some level of this is going to be with us. Forever, yes. So I think, no. I, I do think we're, we're going to have to get to the point where, um, like, severe, I think non-severe cases are, are with us for the rest of our lives. It's the flu. Right. Uh, so I, I, I think we're going to reach that point. I, I hope we get there. I, I, really, um, I think that's what's going to happen. I, I was surprised at how far we got this summer. I didn't expect 2021 to be as normal-ish as it was. Mm. I have high hopes for, for 2022. And I don't, I don't want to wander into a virus vaccine thing, but let's say I have, I have hopes for 2022. Yeah, get your shots, people. Wear a mask, get your shots. Kevin's, Kevin's, Kevin's the, fine saying those things. For the, best, for the best of everyone and for all the people around you, get your jab wear a mask uh it's time for a moment of culture joe me first what do you got go uh i've written a lot in the newsletter about how my desire to get back to reading like a lot of people my brain's been broken by the internet i try to read six consecutive pages and i want to check my email or twitter whatever um but it's it's been a goal of mine i've been able to finish a couple of books recently one is uh loose balls which is a classic sports book it's the best we, we call it an oral history today, but it was just, it's a whole bunch of interviews. Terry Pluto, the great Cleveland writer, did about the American Basketball Association. Which was I, the coolest thing ever. I, you know, you hear about the legends of the ABA, and I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed the book. There were some great stories in there. It was this, this total shoestring thing. And these guys really, I think what I didn't know before going into the book is how passionate the people in the ABA were about the ABA and its success. It, it was a fly-by-night thing because they didn't have any money. But it wasn't a fly-by-night thing because of the people involved. And like I said, there are some fantastic stories about some of the crazy players in the league. Uh, and, and you're hearing about stars who didn't make the crossover. Everybody knows about Artis Gilmore and Dr. J. But reading about somebody like Mel Daniels, who I didn't really know about at all. But it kind of gets to an issue that I had with the book, which is that I'm so far removed from the participants. It's, it was a struggle for me because there's so many characters in the book. And I had this problem with the, the book I finished previously called The Boys on the Bus. By Timothy Krauss, and it was about the seventy, the media coverage of the seventy-two presidential election, McGovern and Nixon, and the two books for me kind of had the same issue for me. I should say it's not the problem with the books is that I'm so I'm just not as knowledgeable about all the players, so it becomes difficult to keep track of all the various storylines. Like I know who George McGovern was, but mm-hmm. I don't know who the media. You know, there was part book about you know Robert Novak was in the book. Okay, I know who that is. 
But there are a lot of reporters who were famous in their time who just didn't, or just outside of that time frame for me. I, both of these books really kind of exposed for me this, this weakness that I have where I just don't know the characters in, in either case. And it, I was still able to enjoy the books, but they were a struggle in a way that I don't think reading about 1980s baseball or 1990s media would necessarily mm. be. And it's frustrating because like media history and sports history are two of my favorite things to read about. So it was definitely like, I need to double, I need to dig in here and really get through these books. But I'd recommend both of them. Um, the Boys on the Bus is beautifully written. It's just the, the writing in that book. And also the things it foreshadows as far as our media environment, and 16 election, the 20 election, were absolutely on point. Oh, wow. And the Loose Balls, is, is, it's just a fantastic ride. Like I said, if you have any interest in basketball whatsoever, it's, it's, it's a great ride. My, 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 there's a lot of great player stories in there, but my, my favorite ABA story is about literally the greatest sports business deal of all time, where the, the ABA, a number of teams in the ABA were sucked into the NBA, um, and some teams were not. And those teams got bought out, and um, they got millions of dollars. And instead of taking the millions of dollars, the owner of the St. Louis Spirits, a pair of brothers, took a portion of television revenue. And this was at a time when the NBA playoffs were not even on television. They were on like, they literally were on tape delay after the local news. So if you wanted to see the big, whatever, Sixers Celtics playoff game, it started at 1130 in tape delay. And so there really was no television revenue. And instead um, of taking the money, this team took, they got one seventh of a team's TV share. And the best part of the deal was that it was in perpetuity. And so obviously, um, as you remember, during the 80s, the NBA exploded the bird magic years. The NBA became a hundred times bigger than it was. Um, and then you had the Jordan, and all of a sudden the NBA was the hottest shit in the world and multi-billion dollar deals. And these two brothers were still getting a one-seventh team share of the TV revenue. Well, um, in, in the book, it's mentioned what a great deal it is. And this is 1990. That deal now. <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore. Oh, did they, did they buy them out? So in 2014, I want to say, like 13 or 14, the NBA said, we want out of this, and they, and they bought them out for $500 million. <laughs> okay, I'd probably take that too. It's the greatest just, thing in the world. That, that, that is the, you, you, get to, you don't have to run your franchise, and you just collect checks every year. And as you say, you know, the NBA was pulling in a couple million a year, maybe, in TV money at that point. The ABA, one of the ABA's biggest problems, it couldn't get a national TV deal. Right, exactly. And then, the, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's... Probably the greatest sports trade ever made. It's the greatest business deal in the history of sports. My, my favorite player story in that book is as Marvin Barnes, who was like a banging power forward, um, played for, I want to say, Louisville, and they were getting ready to fly to their game in St. Louis. And um, there obviously is a time zone line between those two cities. And Marvin looked at his ticket, and it said, takes off at 12 o'clock, lands at 11.55. And he went to the travel secretary and said he didn't want to get on the plane. And then he said, why? He said, because I'm not getting in a goddamn time machine. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the ABA book, that's an incredibly entertaining book. It really uh, is. Just I, a, yeah, there's fun basketball recommend. stories and there are fun like, startup business stories. And it's a, it's a great time. Um, Costas, is, Costas is in there a lot because Costas was the broadcaster for that St. Louis team. That's how right. he got his start. Exactly. The, the, there are a lot of origin stories. You know, David Stern comes up briefly. Uh, mm -hmm. Dr. J, the, the, the people talking about not recognizing what they had in Dr. J when he was at UMass. It's just a great couple of pages. And then, of course, he starts playing. And it's like, oh, wait, you're a basketball guy. Right. Um, yeah, it's a great. I, it's, it's, I don't really read baseball books, but that's a great. That's probably the, my favorite sports book. Um, 
I'm going to talk, I've talked about lots of TV. I'm going to talk about a podcast that I recommend people listen to. And it's called QAnon Anonymous. Um, and obviously we live in the world uh, where QAnon is a thing. Um, where people believe that the Democratic Party, um, it started with, with, with uh, that they um, torture children for adrenochrome. Um, and they kill children and drink their blood for the for the chemical adrenochrome, and it just goes into a much deeper kind of deep state conspiracy. And they're all it's like a satanic cult and things like that. Um, and it was just like this weird little cultish group in the corner when this podcast started, and they really just kind of made fun of them. And they're still entertaining talkers, and they're they 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 really keep track of things. But obviously, it became a much it became something that really infiltrated, you know, one of the two parties in this country, um, and. Uh, it's obviously a more serious thing and, and people get killed and uh, people die. And as you know, a guy just recently killed his two children because he thought that they were being groomed for Satan in the democratic party. And, and so it, it's, it's, it's been fascinating to kind of watch them. They, every week they have a, a story um, and they usually have a, a guest who's covering the story. Um, be it, you know, the, it's growth in places like England and Japan where it's growing at a, at a great rate. And kind of how much it's infiltrated or it's infiltrate our political structure, um, and they they've done an incredible job, kind of transitioning from this is pure look at these these weird funny people to like we can still laugh at this, but this is actually kind of serious now. And you know, uh, plenty of the people who did what they did on January sixth were QAnon people, um, and it's it, it's um, it is your standard kind of uh, Patreon style podcast. There's a free weekly episode and one pay weekly episode. Um, and they do, uh, it's such a good job and they do a great job covering it. They're, they're smart, they're entertaining, they're funny when they need to be, but they've, they've been able to transition to now being serious when they need to be, which is, was not the case early, but is the case now. Um, and I just think it's one of the better listens every week that I have. This is essentially a journalistic approach to the QAnon beat. Yes. And they ha- tend to have a journalist guest on every week who is, um, you know, who's covering the story or they themselves uh, at this point are going to. Um, like QAnon rallies or QAnon conferences and hotels and things like that, um, and reporting from it, and it's 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 fast. It's a fascinating world. I've always kind of been fascinated by 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 cults, and this is kind of a cult in its own way. Yeah, there. I mean, it's broken out. As you point out, there are multiple United States representatives who are, yes. at, at the very least, QAnon adjacent. Yes, uh, like Marjorie Taylor Greene being your your numero your number one draft pick in that one. Yeah, so it's, I'm glad to hear that there's something out there that is taking this or take kind of taking that journalistic approach as opposed to because I do the point and laugh thing too. Because yeah, and they do it a lot of these too. people. A lot of these right. people deserve it. <laughs> what do you? Think? Absolutely, and, and and they do that as well. But they, they also you know at times cover the kind of dark side of this whole thing as well, and it's it's real dark. Um, so that's it. Go look that up. QAnon Anonymous. Uh, I think we're I think we're done here, Joe. You can go gamble. <laughs> Actually, I'm gonna eat a nice meal. I'm gonna get some pool time, eat a nice meal. I guess. Can, what would do they have like casino games here? Do they have them? <laughs> yeah, you can. You can even play them while you eat. You fill out a, You punch some numbers on a card, and if they come up, you're a big winner. It is interesting. There's um, it's such a light schedule. We're recording this on Thursday. There's a very light schedule of baseball tonight, so it's effectively a rare night off. So I, I have the luxury of just going and having. Finding some people I know here and having a nice two-hour meal and talking about other stuff. Probably will just be baseball because, let's face it, I don't, as you know from my moments of culture, I'm not very... Uh, That's I'm what very we do. Right. But yeah, no, um, thanks for having me, Kevin. It's, uh, again, it's, it's great to have you back on this side of the, of, uh, of the game and the podcast have just been absolutely fantastic. 
Oh, I really appreciate that. And, and obviously, thanks to you for coming on and, and wasting your afternoon with me. And, and thanks to everybody for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. So he's a seven in 19. That's 10 and seven, eight, nine, 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 one, nine, nine, He's a one. He's, an, he's, an, he's a young soul. So, and that's why you have to put up with some of the stuff you do. Because you want to grab him by the throat and choke him to death when he talks to you sometime or doesn't listen. But that's all right. He is a legend in his own. Oh